Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover a show we've been talking about doing really since we started this podcast. It's a show that maybe doesn't stand out for what happens in front of the cameras, but the stuff going on behind the scenes, I think, is makes it one of the more interesting Royal Rumbles of all time. It's the Royal Rumble 1997, and it's the one where Vince McMahon decided that while his company's business was lukewarm at best, they should run a stadium show in San Antonio and try to sell 70,000 tickets. I just want you to imagine that you're sitting in that booking audience, that booking office, and business has been down, everyone's depressed, nothing's really drawing, nothing's really working, nothing's clicking. And Vince McMahon walks into the office and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to run a dome. It's like, excuse me? (laughs) What? What the fuck are you talking about? And then I'd be like, what dome? Uh, Are we running Detroit again? We're doing the Silver Dome? He'd be like, no, San Antonio. Like, um, Vince. Fuck me. That part of the country's been deader than dog shit since the the Von Erichs died. Are you you sure? (laughs) Are you fucking crazy? And he was. Yes, this is madness. Like, and I, I understand where it's coming from, that he wants to show strength in a time of weakness, that he wants to basically, he wants to do it to prove that they can do it. Like, it's it's something to do to, like, make a real mark in the wrestling world and kind of steal attention back from WCW. Like, I get why. And he wants to do it to make Shawn Michaels look like the biggest big deal in the history of the business. And for one night, it works. But to... Think about what a monumental task they're facing here. In America, they haven't run a dome. I don't think they've run a stadium, maybe for a house show or something, but not for a pay-per-view since WrestleMania 8, which drew, I think drew about 60,000 people in Indianapolis, but was heavily papered. Like, I think they gave away over 20,000 tickets. I think they sold a little under 40,000 tickets for that one. Think about who's on that show. Hogan, Savage, Flair, those guys not on this show. Not only that, and like business was dipping then. It was pretty obvious the direction that it was going, but the the the, it was a million times hotter than it is in 1997. It's not even fucking close. Yeah, in 1995, 1996, they're running house shows in high school gyms where they're drawing a couple hundred people. You know, for TV, they're running small arenas, Um, you know, thousand, two thousand people, you know, pay-per-views. They're still, you know, they can sell out smaller arenas for pay-per-views, but the pay-per-view before this, the In Your House in December, drew less than 6,000 people total, not even paid. It was like 5,500 people at the Sun Dome in Tampa. And let's make a point of this, because this 1997 is the year that Vince almost goes bankrupt. This is the year that WWE almost closes its doors like this. They're taking this big a swing in a year where they can barely afford to pay their talent when they can't afford to pay Bret Hart. And eventually he's going to leave because of it. Like it's literally this year is the worst year in the history of WWE. And he decides to do this. They're on tilt, you know. It's like a poker player who loses a big hand and then just starts throwing his chips around. Now, Vince McMahon has never been afraid of the big move. Fuck knows he's never been afraid of the big move. Like, 
I'm sure everybody thought he was crazy when he said we're going to run three arenas for WrestleMania two. When he said we're going to run the Pontiac Silverdome for WrestleMania three, pulled those off. But he had Hulk Hogan and a hot product back then. Here should he's just, got. Yeah, they're not just ice WrestleMania cold. in general. Yeah, I mean they're not ice cold. They're coming out of like '95 was the bottom. '96 was better. They're start. You're seeing some green spurts here, but like. They're not anywhere near hot. No. And I mean, as as so much of a sure thing as Austin seems like in retrospect, and as hot as he is at this time, he's he's still a mid-carter. He's not yeah, established. He's not a star yet. <laughs> and like a lot of this show was built around him for him not being a star yet. Yeah. The previous Royal, the 1996 Royal Rumble drew under 10,000 people, but it was sold out, but like in a small arena, it was like 9,600 people or something like that. They hadn't sold 20,000 tickets since I think WrestleMania 10 and at the garden. And that's counting like the people buying the closed circuit tickets to be in the theater. And here they're running a place that can seat what? 80. 70 70 okay and like vince basically they've made it clear a lot of the the interest here is this is the only really good episode of something to wrestle with ever made (laughs) it's the only one that i ever go back and listen to because it's so fascinating to see how they managed to pull this off because really they were hoping as like a a pie in the sky to get thirty thousand people to show up to this yeah what's so the Alamo Dome in San Antonio is where the Spurs played. And, you know, when the Spurs were playing, they were not setting it up for 70,000 people because that would look ridiculous. Yeah. They could drop curtains for like 25,000. That's probably, I mean, that's kind of your fallback here is if you have around 25,000, you can just drop the curtains and like, it'll be okay. Right. And reasonably, that would have still been an enormous success for them is to just get yeah. 30,000 people in the building. Yeah. Like, oh my wow. God. Like they haven't had 30,000 people at a show since like Wembley stadium in 1992. Yeah. So just, and it doesn't even matter how you get them in because you got to remember, it's not about making money here. It's just about showing that you can get that many people to show up. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, what's the minimum for, like, this isn't going to look ridiculous? You can probably shoot 30,000 in a way that looks okay. Yeah. You put them all on the side, like, facing the hard camera and just shoot it tight. Now, here's the thing. If they do this and 10,000 people show up, it's a hilarious disaster. It it boomerangs back in their face so hard. We talked about how that happened to WCW when they tried to run the Superdome for that Clash of the Champions. They drew like 5,000 people. Like, it's happened. And then when that happened, they seemed so small time that it took them years to build back up and seem big time again. It happened to Vince when he tried to run the LA Coliseum for WrestleMania 7 and they had to move it to the sports arena. Yeah, perception in this industry is so, so, so important. Like, if you ask most people who were watching at the time when the boom ended, a lot of them would point to that. And that's not actually where it ended. That's just where the feeling that the boom was still going on ended. It was just just the the first time they really failed. First time they really took a swing at something and struck out. So if that happens here at the end of just several years of trash, I'm not sure they can recover from that. 
Like, that's how important this show is. Yeah. Um, so the previous show we kind of covered from this period was Survivor Series 1996, where Bret Hart beat Steve Austin in his WWF return match, classic match, and Sid won the WWF championship from Shawn Michaels in not a classic match, but a really interesting match where the Garden crowd kind of pulled a fast one on Vince, booed Shawn Michaels, and cheered Sid. This was the best night of Sid's career. Yeah, the night that Sid ruled the world. Like, as gigantic Sid fans, which of course we are, <laughs> um, this that was maybe the greatest night of Sid's career, honestly. Like, that that's as good as it ever was. So, but we know that Sid was not the original plan for that match. It was supposed to be Vader. And my understanding is... Vader was still going to lose to Sean at SummerSlam like he did, but then he was going to get a rematch at Survivor Series and beat him. And then they would do the rubber match down in San Antonio. I don't really understand that booking. And I, I just don't get, why would Sean beat the monster heel in the first match? And how was Vader supposed to sustain his heat after that? That's some straight up John Cena booking. We're just yeah. like, yeah, we'll beat him first and then let him get a win later. Like, no, that's no. that's he stupid. W- he wins the first match. That's or, how nobody gets over. Yeah, I mean, the old style of like Bruno Hogan booking would be like first match is like a DQ or like a blood loss stoppage or something. And then you'd come back around and you'd beat him the second time. And that's doable, too. But if it was me booking, I'd just be like, no, Vader's going to beat Sean at SummerSlam and establish himself as the monster heel. And then we can do the rematch in New York and they can like fight out of the garden for count out DQ crazy shit. Sean can do a moonsault like off the second row of seats, whatever. And then we'll do the last Sean gets his last match in San Antonio, puts his career on the line in his hometown. And he wins back the title. I honestly don't understand why almost every title storyline ever written isn't basically that. Yeah. The the big scary heel comes in, wins, like takes the babyface by surprise. Babyface comes back, shit finish. Then the babyface's last shot is the third one, and then he wins. Like that's that's all anyone wants from a wrestling storyline. Seems like an easy way for six months of hot booking, right? And yet. <laughs> And yeah, it becomes so much harder. So yeah, the SummerSlam match between Sean and Vader was a debacle. There's points where you can like hear Sean yelling at Vader. Like Sean goes to try to hit him with an elbow and Vader's supposed to move and he doesn't. So like Sean changes direction and lands it on his feet, then just starts like stomping on him. And it's like, move, move. <laughs> Which is yeah. the pettiest shit ever, but I laugh every time I see it. Sean did not like working with Vader, was not a good combination, did not like how stiff Vader was, and the company lost faith in Vader, mostly for legitimate reasons. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, nobody liked working with Vader. Nobody who ever walked the face of the earth liked working with Vader. No. This is the guy who, like, broke jobbers' backs. Like, this was the stiffest man in wrestling, but if you booked him as a monster heel, you could really get him over. But he... They, they did the dumb thing. He beats Sean by DQ. They restart the match. He beats him by count out. They restart the match. And then Sean beats him in the third fall. And um, Vader's dead. Yeah, that's that's it. And then he never gets warmed up again. No. No, he's dead. By the but time take he him out back the Undertaker here, nobody gives a shit about him. <laughs> so 
we need a substitute for Vader. Good thing Sid has come back to the company that summer as a replacement for the Ultimate Warrior. Let's say so, call for the man. <laughs> yeah. Call in the pinch hitter. Literally, Psycho Sid's entire career in wrestling is just a pinch hitter. That's his entire... He's always the backup plan. Like, oh, shit, we're not drawn. Call in the big guy. That's, Here he comes out of the bullpen. He, that's when he thrives, when there's no pressure and it's not part of the plan. Yeah. And then he'll always get over. Always. Always, always, always. I mean, there's uh, this motif of self, like self-destruction throughout his career, but it seems like when no one was watching was when it worked for him. Really what it was is just like, you only got... You got good Sid for six months. Yeah. If you tried to push it past that, it wasn't going to work. Yeah, he'd flame out. He'd burn out. He'd get hurt. Whatever. He was born for the territories yeah. where he could just like be white hot for six months, move his ass right along to the next town, white hot for six months. But instead, like they tried to book him like a normal person, and that just wasn't who he was meant to be. If they had booked him like they used to book Andre, he would have been the hottest fucking star in the history of the business. But he's perfect for this exact role of he's going to come in, he's going to squash a bunch of guys, he's going to get hot, he's going to win the title, and then he's going to drop the belt back to the champion and put the baby face over huge. And it works to perfection here. Yeah, he was exactly what they needed. And the only ex- bump in the road is the garden crowd cheered him over Sean, which was just kind of forgotten about the next night anyway. Yeah, it's not like that was a thing that was going on around the horn. Like Sid was over, but he was getting booed everywhere else they went. And it helps that this match was in Sean's hometown. So, of course, the crowd was going to be on his side here. Like, when we get to the match, we'll kind of talk about that, too. But were you shocked at how much, even though he's the hometown boy, which, of course, that holds major sway, he's a thousand times more over than everyone else here. Yeah. I mean, this is the best night he had as a baby face, like at least in this, this initial run. I mean, this is kind of the one time it felt like it all really clicked for him. Yeah. He looks like a Hogan level star on this one night, the one night in his entire career. So, um, November 20th, they made the official announcement, um, at the, that the Royal rumble would be at the Alamo dome in San Antonio. And, the timeline there is kind of crazy to me that it's they're trying to sell 70,000 tickets and they're not putting them on sale until three months out. Like today they announce where the big pay-per-views are like a year in advance and put the tickets on sale like a year in advance. Yeah, it's it's astonishing, too, because like the best part about this is that the one thing I can truly say that Bruce Pritchard has done that is a absolute unqualified success is that he was in charge of this yeah they vince basically said i don't know shit about texas i don't know shit about mexico go make sixty thousand hispanic people come to my show yeah trying to and, explain to those yankee bastards from new york how a walk-up worked that's the funniest thing because okay explain to our fans how a walk-up works and what what's the difference when it comes to a texas wrestling show yeah, I mean, a New York wrestling show, people in New York have money. They buy their tickets weeks and months in advance. You know, Texas, working class, especially his, especially think especially for Hispanic fans, many of whom are day laborers, get paid for their jobs in cash. 
they don't know that they're going to be able to afford to go to the show until it's the day of and they have the money. So they're not buying their tickets in advance. They're actually going to go to the arena and buy their tickets at the gate. And that's the fantastic thing is that Vince is so used to knowing in advance. But for a walk-up show, you don't have a fucking clue until the bells ring. Like it, by the time the first match rolls around here, Vince still doesn't know how many people are coming to this show. Yeah, like we might have sold 500 tickets a week in advance and end up drawing 8,000 people, or we might draw 2,000 people. We just don't know. And I think he said that like they had only sold 2,000 tickets before, and Vince was like having a goddamn heart attack. Oh yeah, I've got I've got these numbers for the timeline later on, and it's amazing how many tickets they sell like in the last seven days here. But um, to jump back to the press conference, uh, November 20th. I believe that's like the day after Survivor Series. Uh, the press conference has Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, and Piroth Jr., the Mexican luchador. Um, Sid is obviously supposed to be at the press conference. He's just won the world title, but he overslept and didn't make the flight. The one just, time Shawn Michaels was the more professional guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Shawn Michaels course was up drinking all night with steve austin in new york but still got his ass on the plane and made made it there yep sid couldn't be fucking bothered isn't that like an all-time thing like i know accidents can happen but like isn't it just like sid to be like whatever put the world title on you and you can't make it to the fucking press you can't like they had a chartered plane to take everybody down there it was just get your ass to the private air air strip where this thing was going to take off from and he couldn't do it and it's not like he was in the car and he just missed it like sid didn't wake up till like noon that day (laughs) i just yeah imagine being vince and everybody and like against Every instinct you have, you've put your world title on Psycho Sid. And he just immediately Sids you. <laughs> I love that we're using Sid as a verb now, and but I'm you know all what for it that. Is. Yeah. <laughs> you just didn't show him. I mean, this guy who, when you tried to push him as a top star in the early 90s, just quit the company on you out of nowhere. Just refused to take drug tests. Boys and girls, you can use this in your everyday life. When when your manager at work and your employee decides that he doesn't really feel like showing up, he sitted you. Yeah. I don't remember if he refused. I think he actually took the drug tests and just failed them and just, like, dared them to do something. It's like, whatever, man. I don't care if you fire me or not. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <sighs> if you fire me, I'll just leave, and then you'll call me a year from now when you need me. I I don't ever need a job. The December in your house was headlined by Sid versus Bret Hart for the title. Um, Sid retained the belt there after Shawn Michaels, who was doing commentary, accidentally hit Bret with a chair. Uh, the show went off air with Shawn and Bret brawling. Definitely feels like they're building towards Shawn versus Bret at WrestleMania at this point. Oh, God, yeah. And, like, that was so the no-brainer match, right? Because so much has changed since the last time we did that match. And now, like, Sean's the guy who's on top, and Brett's getting bitter, and it it just makes sense that that's where you'd be going. Um, As I mentioned before, that pay-per-view, the December in your house, drew, like, 5,600 people. So, yeah. (laughs) They're trying to go from 5,600 people to 70,000 in the span of a month. This may be the biggest disparity between two pay-per-views in attendance ever in the history of wrestling. 
Yeah. This is about as big as it gets. So what are you going to do here? They go with a multi-pronged attack here. They, I mean, they throw everything they've got at this. All the old tricks in the book. They spend way more money on promotion than they normally would for a Royal Rumble. Um, They brought in the team that they used to promote WrestleMania and put them to work on this show, put them on, on the ground in San Antonio. They dropped the ticket prices down as low as they could go. Um, Most of the seats are $10. Like the front row seats are like $175. And then there's like some $40 seats like up close. And after that, it's like 15 bucks, 10 bucks. Yeah. Which is, I mean, this is really the, this, the playbook here is very similar to the WrestleMania three playbook. Um, they did the $10 tickets there. Of course, there's been some inflation. So $10 was a little more back then, but they did the same kinds of deals with like coupons for $5 tickets. Um, they, oh, they, do like, show. they do like the Taco Bell thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sure in Detroit, I'm sure it was like Burger King instead of Taco Bell, but same principle. Yeah. Literally like you go to Taco Bell, you buy a taco, you get a ticket. Like that's basically yeah. what we're doing here. Yeah, uh, it was Dr. Pepper and Taco Bell, I think, were the two big things. Uh, uh, they gave away thousands. They gave away like 12,000 tickets, which we'll get to when we go over the attendance. But they were very generous with these things. Um, and then they worked with AAA to bring in you know, Mexican stars to try to attract Hispanic fans. Um, we'll get to that in a second. The Taco Bell coupons probably saved the show. Like those $5 Taco Bell tickets were, I think, what got them to the number they needed here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the idea, if nothing else, even if it wasn't the coupon specifically, just like the awareness that that causes. Of Massive just like promotion. Every, every time Taco you go to Taco Bell. Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Every Taco Bell is promoting tickets to the Royal Rumble here. And that's you know, free advertising for WWE. They're not paying Taco Bell for that. Yeah, exactly. Like They're and that's, getting paid by Taco Bell for that. And, like, there's all these stories about them, like, they're plastered on buses, they're plastered on the side of buildings, like, Everywhere. everything you can do. Everyone in San Antonio was aware this was happening. Yeah. They were literally putting out, like, millions of these tickets, these coupons. They were everywhere. Like every power bill that everyone got that month had a ticket to the show in it. Yeah. Um, six weeks out, they had sold less than 10,000 tickets. <laughs> yeah. Like they're staring death right in the face here. But what he doesn't, well, what they didn't really understand is that that's a shitload. Like, if they really understand the way that business works, especially in Mexican wrestling, they would have understood that what they were looking at was an incredible number of people if you're selling 10,000 ahead of time. Like, there's stories about, like, Arena Mexico shows that sell, like, five tickets, and then the attendance is 20,000. It's, like, it's ridiculous. The rodeo in Texas, which is the biggest deal in the world, it sells, like, 11 tickets before it actually happens. (laughs) We'll get to the famous tractor pull. Yeah. <laughs> in a minute. Um, so, yeah, they work out a deal with AAA to do a talent exchange here. They send, they don't send much of, I mean, they don't send much of anything down to Mexico. They sent fake Razor and Diesel. <laughs> Which the funniest thing is that both sides think that they're fleecing the other because <laughs> I know 
Because Vince sends fake Razor Knees, and they're like, yeah, that, they're not worth shit. And Antonio Pena is just like, yeah, well, we don't have any stars anymore, so fucking joke's on you. Yeah, let's talk about the rise and fall of AAA here. So circa 1994, AAA was the hottest wrestling promotion in North America. Uh, they did a tour of house shows in America that like sold out, sold out in L.A., sold out in Texas. They were on fire. They did the When Worlds Collide pay-per-view, which we've got to do sometime, that drew like a shockingly good buy rate considering AAA barely had TV in America. They were on fire. And then the Mexican economy crashed, the peso was devalued, and WCW raided all of their talent, and Conan started his own promotion. Yeah, here's the thing. Like, when we do that AAA show, I'll get more into, like, how AAA actually came about in the extremely carny way that that promotion was actually formed. One it's, shining moment. It's one of the brilliant coups in wrestling history, actually. But basically, what by this point, AAA is on its ass. Like, it had a very, very, very short peak because basically... The Win Worlds Collide pay-per-view was a great idea and a great moneymaker for them, but actually it was the worst thing they possibly could have done because they exposed all the talent to Bischoff, and he just took all of it. Like, Conan was the mole, that, and basically Conan just helped all of the talent escape AAA, come to America, and sign contracts with Bischoff. So by this point, AAA's got nothing. They got a lot of older guys who basically weren't wanted from CMLL because like all the old, all like the real heavyweight talent was in CMLL. All the up and coming stars were in AAA, but they're all gone now. So basically they only have Hector Garza. Hector Garza is the only thing that they are really working with right now. And correct me if I'm wrong, but AAA's base of strength isn't really the border towns, right? I mean, it's really not like EMLL, the way that Mexico used to work was EMLL was sort of the central governing power, and then there were a lot of, like, mini territories sprinkled all over the country. And if you wanted to have a really – basically, so like, the Guerreros would have, like, the El Paso region, for example, and they would run their own shows. But when it came time to, like, really blow something off or make it big, they go to EMLL and blow it off there. You know what I mean? Like, that's where you went to get promoted as on a national scale. So, like, EMLL was, like, way more situated central – and then when they split, AAA kind of took that because they had Televisa, like, who owned them, who was promoting. So, like, they was sort of kept that Mexico City center of the country. So, really, nobody's running the border towns for, like, a good five-year period here. So, like, AAA is not super well-known, like, across the border in Texas. When I tell you that Texas was dead for 10 years, tech, Dallas, especially the Dallas region, was considered so dead that people thought you'd never be able to promote wrestling there ever again. After yeah, the Von Erich after the Von Erich deaths, yeah, that's only ten years, not even ten years. Like Carrie died, like what four years before this? Uh, ninety two, ninety three, yeah. It's yeah. so, like literally, like it's still pretty fresh. San Antonio had never really been a hotbed per se. Like it, had, the Guerreros had run successfully in the El Paso region, but like this is not a hotbed. Running the territories that used to run the border towns haven't really been a thing since like the mid early mid eighties. This is a terrible region to run wrestling in, and AAA is not hot here. No. Yeah, so you're making. I mean, you're making this deal with AAA. Doesn't really have much of any talent. 
none of the AAA guys on this show get over at all. Like, no. Despite this, the stadium presumably presumably being loaded with Hispanic fans, none of the AAA guys get any reaction at all. Except for the only one who was still wrestling in the early 80s when the border towns were big. Yeah. Like Mil Mascaris gets a great, yeah, he gets a pop when he comes out. Because everyone's grandpa remembered him. Yeah. Yeah. And we also have to say that, like, this audience, if you look out at it as the camera shots go out, this may be the biggest Hispanic wrestling audience ever assembled. Like, this... Mexico doesn't have venues this size. Like, Arena Mexico holds, like, maybe 18,000 people. Like, this this is a gigantic collection of Hispanic people, which is a fantastic. It, it's stunning that they never tried to do anything like this when, like, Eddie was on top of SmackDown. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, they, they don't know who Cybernetico is. <laughs> They don't know who Piroth is. These are stars that were made in the early 90s at on, like, Televisa. Like, this is not who they know. So, yeah, I mean, in the end, I don't think the AAA involvement amounted to anything on no, this show. I don't think that was a net value add at all. This is when they, like, when the, the WWE would try to run Japan and they would get, like, war. Nobody gives a shit about war. <laughs> yeah. I This is... The most culturally incompetent company on the face of the planet. They still are. This year, 2019, Triple H tried to, like, move in and buy stardom. Like, like that was just going to be a thing you could do, just roll into Japan and buy a Japanese wrestling promotion. He wanted to buy Noah and stardom and just, like, run his developmental through that. As if that's just something Japan was going to be cool with, that they weren't all just going to band together against him. They don't get it. <laughs> and they never did. No, no. I mean, yeah, so the AAA deal for, I mean, we end up with a bunch of AAA matches, like in dark matches and on the kickoff show. And then a AAA match on the main show, and then like literally 10 AAA guys in the Royal Rumble, and it does nothing at all. None of them get any response. Though I, I don't know what they would have done had they not had the AAA guys in the Rumble, because they did not have enough people on this roster to fill no. a 30 man Rumble. No. And like, yeah, WCW kind of has all the old guys at this point, so it's tough for them to dig up. I don't know. Honky Tonk Man was probably available. Surprised he wasn't in this. It says as you go down the list of the people who are in this, these mid ninety rubbles are rough. Where they're trying to get to thirty guys in there. I mean, like, there's people like Flash Funk is in this thing. I don't think he's appeared on their television in like six months. The year before this, they have Dick Murdoch in there, and I swear <laughs> to God, he died like two months later. <laughs> They used Dory Funk in one of the Rumbles around this time. Like, Every we did that one from 94 where they had, like, Kabuki and Tenru. Like, they were digging deep. Yeah, every single person who wrestles a match on this show is also in the Rumble, except for Michaels and Sid. Like, it's just... I, I dig that, though. I always yeah. think everybody should be in there. I mean, like, we've kind of talked about this before. I'm not... I don't know that it makes it... I'm, I've always sort of felt like the Rumble doesn't really need an undercard period. I think you'd get away with, like, one match on the undercard in the Rumble. Yeah, or at least just do, like, straight mid-card matches. You don't need to put, like, heavyweight title matches on there. You don't need to put... 
Like, the time where they put, like, an actual main event after the Rumble was a fucking joke. Like They did it here. Yeah, it's just... It's, here, it's, it made, here it made sense, because it was Sean in the Dome in his hometown. But, yeah, I mean, to me, the Rumble should almost always go go on last, except in very special circumstances. Yeah, when it's Kurt Angle versus Mark Henry, it's not <laughs> quite the same. Well, Undertaker was going to show up and blow up the ring. That, that's a fair point. Couldn't have a Royal Rumble and a destroyed ring, although I would have liked to see it. How fucking awesome would that be? Or if they did, like, the crooked ring, like, after Big Show and Lesnar do it, so yeah. you got to try to throw people out at, like, a 45-degree slant. Well, they did that. When they did the repeat of the, they had the ring blow up uh, with the Mark Henry Big Show thing, and they had seen in Del Rio go out and wrestle in the destroyed ring. Yeah, that was cool as hell. Yeah. Um, so the Rumble is built around Bret Hart and Steve Austin. Um, they've been feuding for months. They both want to be the number one contender and go to WrestleMania. Um, Bret was originally booked to win this. And then Vince Russo shot his mouth off and they changed the finish. I'm not kidding. That's one of those things that I always thought was an urban legend yeah. until it actually got confirmed. And I was like, are you fucking like, serious? Both by Russo and Bruce Prichard. Like, like 100% who had... this is what happened. But see, people who had no reason to lie about it confirmed it. And I'm just like, that's crazy. Nobody listens to whatever fucking fucking live wire. Nobody's listening to live wire. It's not a spoiler. So they did a segment on live wire where they have everybody making their picks for the rumble. And Russo is on there in his Vic Venom persona. It's real cutting edge. I mean, his thing was like he kind of makes shooty comments and he was kind of the insider. Um, so he, Russo gets asked for his pick and he says something like, you know, guys, it's obvious Bret Hart's going to win the Royal Rumble. And they ask him like, oh, well, you sound really confident. You know, who's your second choice? He just like wouldn't get one. He was like, no, it's, it's going to be Bret Hart. Like, guys, come on. It's, Bret Hart's going to win this thing. But here's the funniest thing. He didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, Vince he says he thought that know he knew finish. it and was yeah, Vince thought that he knew it and was spilling the beans, but Russo didn't actually know. I think he was actually he was I think that by that point he was coming to the creative meetings because like he was writing for the magazine and like he needed to know like what was going on, but he's not anywhere near the inner circle at this point. But so Vince hears that Russo spills it and he's just like, Well fuck, we gotta change it. Nobody asks Russo, like, hey, did you actually mean to spill it? Like, Vince just hears about it, because I don't I think Vince even saw it. It's not hard to figure out what's going I mean, it, it is obvious Bret Hart's going to win the Royal Rumble, of so they can do Bret is. and Sean at WrestleMania, but you're not supposed to say it that way. That's the thing, is that you just set basically set up in December that that's what the main event was going to be. It's yeah. not a fucking surprise. But you're supposed to be like, oh, Bret Hart's going to win. He's the excellence of execution. He's got the stamina. He won the 1994 Royal Rumble. He's going to do it again. You're not supposed to be like, well, because obviously he's going to fucking win. That's where the booking is headed. Dude. Yeah, you fucking you watch marks. the show. <laughs> and yet, and yet, even after this, they's, they're like, all right, well, let's get him more inside and give him more information. So they make the call to change it and have Austin win instead, which is just another in a strange series of accidents that helps Steve Austin become a star. Yeah, that's the thing. If Austin doesn't win here... And they don't have to put him in that, like, fatal four-way match. Like, I'm not sure that he's in it. I'm not sure. 
Like they kind of like, shot, he fades back down. I mean, at this point, I think the plan is for him to work with Bulldog at WrestleMania. Like that's going to be a nothing match. They keep backing their way into Austin. Like, oh, shit, Shawn Michaels lost his smile, got to go to Austin. Oh, shit, this happened, got to go to Austin. And, like, Austin just keeps being presented to people as a big deal for long enough that they have a chance to buy it. And they do. Um, the other big undercard match is uh, The Undertaker against Vader. Not much consolation for Vader not being the world champion here. God. By this point, Vader is just, he might as well be a mini Vader for all he matters on this show. Um, Other things going on. Uh, They've debuted Shotgun Saturday Night. Yeah. Uh, They ran uh, on the Saturday night, the night before this, Terry Funk showed up on Shotgun Saturday Night, which was at some bar strip club in San Antonio. Terry Funk shows up, cuts a hilarious promo where he says that Bret Hart's mother is a whore. Your mother's a whore. Vince McMahon is a Yankee (laughs) bastard and Jim Ross is an oaky asshole. This is specifically after they specifically request that he not curse on television. It's like, okay, Terry, you know, this is Aaron live, (laughs) like on syndicated network TV and a bunch of places in the country. You know, it's really late at night. So there's nobody around to like do the seven second delay. If you curse, like got to keep it clean here. And he just goes off the rails. Like your mother's a whore is one of the all time greatest lines. Like I just I can't even believe <laughs> Bret Hart, your mother's a whore. <laughs> and just the look on everyone's face. Oh God. Yeah. As Bruce Pritchard recounts, he was the one who was sent to tell Funk not to curse. And as he's like standing there in the tunnel while this is going, not in the tunnel because it's at a bar, but he's somewhere like within Vince McMahon's sightline as this funk promo is going on. And he just sees Vince's face turn red and the look of rage on his face. <laughs> <laughs> but like, why would you give Terry Funk a hot mic and the this opportunity to piss people off? <laughs> awesome this should have been on raw and then him and austin end up like brawling out of the bar it's perfect yeah it's just oh my god saturday night what a weird show it's just amazing that they even came up with the concept for it and went through with it isn't it like it's it's one of those vince mcmahon fucking idea yeah it's one of those vince mcmahon ideas that makes no sense and they just went full hog on it we're gonna shoot this live in nightclubs you have to fly people into like New York City or wherever the hell for this show. Nobody's gonna watch. We're gonna spending money buying time on syndicated TV for this. It's a stupid idea. But they wanted that edge. Yeah. They I wanted mean, that hard grit. Hard of we're seeing them move toward. We're, we're this is the early stages of the Attitude Era. Like we're not quite there yet, but it's getting more and more attitude. Eh? Vince doesn't know what he's looking for yet. It won't be until Sean basically gives it to him by being a dickhead that he really gets what it's supposed to be. But like he knows that he's 
reaching for something. Like, it predates Russo. Russo wasn't the only thing that launched the Attitude Era. Vince knew that he wanted something like that. He just couldn't get there. Like, he's too stuck in his 80s Vince McMahonisms. So he's trying all this wacky shit trying to grab it. Until eventually Sean and Russo will just give it to him. So as noted in the Wrestling Observer, one thing that gave the WWF hope was that a tractor pull had once done a 30,000 ticket walk up at the Alamo Dome. <laughs> Imagine that's what you're hanging your hat on. Like, well, oh yeah, heard there was a tractor pull there a while ago. <laughs> I just love that, like, Jim Cornette or Jim Ross or somebody called Meltzer and actually said that to him. Hey, 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 it's it's not a huge disaster. One time a tractor pull drew big on the day of. <laughs> oh, yeah, we all remember that tractor pull. What the hell is a tractor pull? Oh, okay. Well, I, I live in Ohio where we uh, have lots of these, actually. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> Everybody drives their tractors out of the fields oh into God. the big fairgrounds and tries to pull heavy shit. <laughs> That's a tractor pull. 30,000 people for that. I've never been to a tractor pull, no. But I live very close to Bowling Green, which is the home of the one of the biggest tractor pulls in the country. And it draws like 30,000 people. <laughs> so... It just brings people out of the like the fields of Iowa where you don't even know people live. Like those people just descend on. A week out, they had sold twenty eight thousand tickets, which is really good. Yeah, but I'm sure they were freaking out. I but mean, here's the funny thing: is that like twenty thousand plus twelve thousand comp, they're at forty thousand a week out. Like that that sounds like on track, but because they're not used to walk up business. They probably don't realize that yet. But here's the funny thing is that now that even puts them in a more awkward position because you have two scenarios. One, the people who have already bought tickets are the only ones coming. OK, so then you got to put the curtains down, but you got 30,000, so you should be OK. Or 30,000 more people show up and you're not at all ready for that. So like, what yeah. are you going to pay for all the extra security and all the extra employees and all got the extra to. ticket takers? Or... Are you going to think that – because if 30,000 extra people show up, you have a riot on your hands. Yeah. Um, they had to prepare. I mean, it's you just spend the money on the security and stuff because the money's not – the gate's not making you money here. Like, you're giving the tickets away. Um, and we'll get to it in a second. The gate, even with 60,000 60, people there, is not really that big. Like, it's about the same size gate they would do, like, selling out the garden. But the, it must have been such an amazing feeling oh that God. on the day of to like watch like the crazy lines of walk up people yeah. descend on the stadium. Yeah. And to watch when you're sitting there on the pre-show and people are filing in, you're seeing just how big the crowd is getting. Like I can imagine this feeling better than WrestleMania three, just because for WrestleMania three, they were hot. They were selling out everywhere. Yeah, Here, you knew you were going to get seven. Out. They're not selling out anywhere. They can't sell the garden out at this point. Yeah, there's a big difference between thinking you might get 60 and getting 78 and thinking you might get 20 and getting 60. Like, that's a big difference. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they went out for a nice steak dinner after this and everybody was slapping backs. Yeah. I mean, this was this was a big win. This feels like it kind of set them back on the right course. And if you think about how you mentally perceive WWE during this period, isn't this right about where you start to think like, oh, man, this is right when they started to get their mojo back. Yeah. But it's not. They didn't. Not business-wise. No, WrestleMania fucking bombs this year. WrestleMania does the worst buy rate event. WrestleMania does less than 250,000 buys this year. It's by far the worst they've ever done. This company is still a creative and financial disaster well into the fall. Like, that's when they started to turn it around. But But the perception is in large part created by the success that they have here. And everyone coming away from this being like, oh, man, WWE's back. They did it. What a, what an amazing success. I had not made this connection for a long time, but when they start to panic is when they get that WrestleMania buy rate number. Like when they get the WrestleMania check and it's probably like $2 million less than it was supposed to be. Cause they probably thought after this, like, all right, we drew 60,000, you know, 350, 400,000 buys for WrestleMania, you know, gross, you know, five, $6 million. And instead it's like, two million dollars and then they can't pay everybody because again this is during the period where you got your pay basically from the wrestlemania paycheck they've put guys they put guys on but they put guys on guarantees at this point like brett they've guaranteed brett like a million dollars you know taker sean austin 750 like they have made those guaranteed money and like they don't have the money to pay them from the wrestlemania check so where's it going to come from Yeah. Just think about the way that your business works in your everyday life. Like at the end of the fiscal year, whatever money is left over, that's the money allocated for like raises and bonuses and stuff. Well, in this case, WrestleMania is the end of the fiscal year, but they're so behind that they need that money just to get to the ability to pay their talent what they already owe them on their guarantees. Like that guaranteed money comes from the WrestleMania payday. But if it isn't there... Now we're getting into the territory that caused Jim Crockett to close yeah. down, that caused DCW to close down. Very reminiscent of those situations. Like we've shelled out all this guaranteed money and we just don't have the money to make our payroll. Like this is why a lot of people say this is the year they could have gone out of business because this is exactly, exactly the circumstances Jim Crockett ran, went out of business on. Yeah. Like all the guaranteed contracts situation. and we'll have the money from the pay-per-views and then the pay-per-views bombed. Say the way ECW closed because they had a lot of money coming that was withheld from them on purpose because the pay-per-view companies knew that they weren't going to have to pay it out. There's no money coming to Vince here. If he can't start drawing some money, there's nothing coming. Like he's already dipping into his personal money and it's not infinite. So yeah, the show is Sunday, January 16th, 1997 at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas. Um, You know, the attendance... They draw, they sell 48,014 tickets and give away a little over 12,000. So they end up with 60,525 in attendance. As we said, an incredible achievement. You know, they're 10,000 seats short of a sellout, but looks great on TV. I think the empty seats are all kind of on the hard camera side and the upper deck. So when they pan the arena, when they pan the stadium, looks full, you know, incredible crowd here. Yeah, it looks absolutely amazing. And this is one of those crowds, too. It's it's kind of similar to a Lucha crowd. This isn't like a traditional American crowd that just kind of sits on their hands until, like, the stars come out. Like, there's people, like, moving and murmuring and jumping up and down. Like, it feels, like, wild 
for a WWE crowd. It's you know? cool. It's multi-generational too. You've clearly got a bunch of families with like the grandpa, the grandpa and the dad and the kids all there together. Well, that's my favorite thing is when Mill Maskers comes out, they pan yeah. the crowd and it's all the old guys standing up like, fuck yeah, that's my dude from when I was 11. <sighs> Mill Maskers. I can't wait to talk about that. Oh yeah. Um, so 60,000, the gate is about $480,000, which as I said, you know, on 48,000 tickets sold, you can tell like the average ticket price is barely $10. It's super cheap. Yeah, that I'm sure that didn't even cover the amount they spent on marketing. Like they they definitely yeah. took a big loss here. So the arena, yeah, rent in the stadium was something like 120 or $150,000. That plus taxes plus marketing, like the gate was pretty much a wash. The money was in the pay-per-view, which didn't do very well actually. Not super surprising. It's not this card no. isn't any better than the one the month before. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's Sid and Sean is, yeah, I mean, Sean fighting for the title is going to draw great in his hometown, but Sean's not that over as a babyface at this point. People aren't really buying him. They still haven't quite figured out. They're still basically running a house show business mentality instead of a pay-per-view business mentality. And I don't think they're really going to figure that out until like the following year. Yeah. Um. So they only do 244,000 buys, which is down a little bit from the 260,000 they did the previous year. Oof. I don't know exactly. The pay-per-views at this point are either 25 or 30. I think they're 30 at this point. I believe you're right about that, yeah. So that's, I don't know, company gross on that's probably like three and a half million, which is not, you know, not super. Not great. Not great at all. I mean, th- I mean, this is the problem they run into is until the fall, they are not selling pay-per-views this year. It's the big breakthrough. Like, well, it's, um, that's the thing too. Is Sean that in the and Taker or... managed to do two hundred, like two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand buys in October, and like that's what saves. That's what really saved their business was switching from the two-hour in your houses to the three-hour in your houses because they raised the price and they actually ended up selling more pay-per-views because they ended up putting on better cards that more people wanted to see. But they were, they were thinking like, we're going to raise the prices and we won't sell as many, but we'll make more money because we'll be selling them at a higher price. But they ended up getting the best of both worlds. Like they raised the price and more people bought it because they were better shows. Yeah. Because they put things on, you'd actually want to see like things weren't main evented by like Ahmed Johnson. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, um, on commentary, the very strange trio of Vince McMahon, Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. Um, JR is still kind of doing a heel shtick here, but it's a little bit. I kind of like him in this role where he's kind of the neutral analyst, but clearly he should be doing play by play instead of Vince. Oh, yeah. Like there's this weird, weird, weird thing going on here. We're like, it almost feels like JR is trying to be like NWA JR. Like, he's trying so hard to call it, but, like, Vince is functionally the play-by-play guy. Vince spends so much of this show passive in a way that I've never heard him be on commentary. And I have to imagine that's because there's so many issues going on with such a big venue and stuff that, like, he's, like, actually dealing with stuff and, like, letting JR kind of take the lead. I bet he's constantly, like, got his button pressed and he's talking to the back. 
because he's just so quiet and reserved. And even when he is talking, he doesn't seem super focused on what's going on. Like, I just imagine maybe this is when Vince realizes, like, look, I there's so much going on here. I can't be out here. I And, like, JR kind of takes it. And it's actually it kind of works. So maybe this is maybe the first time that Vince realizes maybe I need to step away from this role. Yeah. So they did a weird thing with Jr. Um, I guess it was in like October they did this, but that was they turned him heel. They had him promise that he was bringing back Razor Ramon and Diesel. Yeah. And they brought out the fake Razor and the fake Diesel, which just one of those most bizarre moments in company history um the backstory i've heard claimed is that they were just and this makes sense to me that they they were suing wcw for trademark infringement um for how that they were portraying hall and nash as working for the wwf and you know kind of that they were portraying their wwf characters in wcw which they had a very strong case for with scott hall like he's still using the cuban accent and like he's got the toothpick he's got the the whole look i mean with kevin nash i don't think they had as much of a case but like very much scott hall like was doing razor ramon it's so they decide to put him on tv so they can be like look this is our tv character that's on our television we're still using this intellectual property so we still have standing to sue like there would have been more of an issue if they weren't using the characters anymore wcw would just been like well there's no harm done because they aren't using them anyway but here's Um, the thing is that you didn't have to make a big deal out of it you could have just put them like one appearance on shotgun saturday night and then they could do the house show circuit like it doesn't wrestle on fucking superstars with no bill just like we come back from commercial and we've got fake razor ramon wrestling in the ring and that qualifies instead they built this up as like this big deal razor and diesel are coming back and they completely lied to their audience the funny thing is that there's value in these fake characters like wcw got an an alarming amount out of fake sting jeff farmer because they sent him to japan and like (laughs) you send him to foreign fans who don't really know anything but the gimmick they don't know the performer and you can kind of get away with it if you send that's what they do here they send him to mexico yeah like they don't fucking know they don't get the tv yeah yeah yeah, I mean, there's a proud tradition in Mexico because they're all wearing masks of booking the same guy on multiple shows on the same night. Like, oh, someday you should, if you ever want to take a, a just a stroll through wrestling carny hell, look and find out how many Mysticos there were the second Mystico left Mexico. There are like seven of them. <laughs> I mean, it's a proud tradition in America, too, where people promote shows with, oh, we've got Bruno San Martino and Hobo Brazil. How many Doink the Clowns have there been? Hundreds? Thousands? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it, WWE did it. They, they just fired uh, Sin Cara, presumably after he threatened to beat Vince up backstage if he didn't release him. That's such a great story for another time. The fact that Sin Cara, fake Sin Cara, is the greatest backstage fighter of all time. <laughs> what was his like, record? Like 6-0, and oh, I think? Yeah, I think so. Just like the baddest man on the planet. Didn't have a lot of fights these last couple of years. I think everybody like realized they couldn't touch him. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, the other thing is, I feel like if you had an actual heel manager, you could have gotten him some heat with that. But like to use Jim Ross in that role is so stupid. And just like 
the epitome of like Vince thinks JR is a heel to Vince. So he thinks he's a heel to everybody. Do you think he ever realized how beloved Jim was? Or do you think always in his mind to this day, he's a heel? This shows a big milestone for JR actually, because it's the first time he wore the cowboy hat. And they reference it like 25 times on the show. Vince had been trying to get JR in that cowboy hat forever. And he was right. The cowboy hat was a great gimmick for him. Well, that's the funny thing is that Vince thought putting the cowboy hat on him would make him more hateable because guys in cowboy hats are assholes from the South. And actually, it became his like his iconic thing. Yeah, now you can't get the cowboy hat off him. Can, like, I've seen him without it. and It just looks fucking weird. Yeah. <sighs> so, yeah. Um, the opening package is all about Shawn Michaels and how his boyhood dream turned into a nightmare, but tonight's his chance at redemption. Not a bad package. Not a bad package at all. And also, the video was good. Aha! On the other hand, would have loved to see the old school Rumble intro where Vince would read off the name of everyone in the Rumble. <laughs> I would have loved Cybernetico, Mir Mascaras. <laughs> Vince having to like roll his R's and do the luchador names would have been so funny. Just like even when they come out in the actual rumble, they just like this is Latin lover, <laughs> Latin lover, <laughs> Pedro Aguayo Jr. Don't you know how much we missed out on the dark matches not being on the actual show? So we could have hear him have to list off everybody. Mascarita Sagrada. Glad you reminded me. We should go over what the fucking dark matches were. By the way, these dark matches are awesome. And I wish we had gotten to see them. Okay. First dark match. Paraguayo Jr. and Venom defeated Maniaco and Mosco de la Merced. All a bunch of jabronis, but Paraguayo Jr., big fucking deal. Forgive my my gringo tongue. Haven't spoke any Spanish since high school. Okay, I can't roll my R's to save my life. It's a thing. Uh, second dark match, Blue, Blue Damon Jr., Octagon, Tineblas. Tineblas, yeah. Uh, defeated Abismo Negro, Heavy Metal, and Hysteria. That match rules. Yeah, Holy like shit, really that match rules. Yeah. Uh, does that exist online somewhere? I doubt it. I've never seen it. I've seen all those guys wrestle a million times before. And they, I wonder they, if they put that on the DVD release. This is the kind of show where it would actually be worth it down the D. This is the kind of show where, like, they should release this on DVD and do a fucking documentary on this. Yeah. Well, here's the like, thing. I'm not sure they're allowed by Triple A to put this on. It's a good point, actually. I don't know what the status of some of this stuff is. Because, but that's the thing is that Heavy Metal is on the dark match and in yeah, another match. In the, yeah, he's in the main match on the card too. So I'm really and, not sure about that. And then uh, Mini's match: Mascarita Sagrada Jr. and La Parquita defeated Mini Mankind and Mini Vader. Uh, somehow Mini Paul Bear was not there for this, unfortunately. That's a shame. I mean, that's that was love the I love the mini versions of the real characters. Absolutely. Um, 
the funny thing about this is it's pretty clear that they let triple a book the triple a matches because the booking only makes sense from triple a's perspective <laughs> like in terms of who they were pushing at the time in various ways like it doesn't it doesn't make sense if you're WWE not to put, say, Paraguayo Jr. in the match with Hector Garza and Paraguayo. Like, it doesn't make sense for Kanek to get the big push there as babyface. Like, it just... None of it makes any sense from WWE's perspective. Like, I really do think that they let Pena just choose what matches got put on because they didn't know. Probably. They don't know who the hell these guys are. Um, yeah. I'm sure they liked Garza. Like, Garza's got the look they would have been looking for. I'm amazed that they didn't try to wrench him away, honestly, because he could have been a star. Did he end up in WCW? Oh, uh, he ended up in TNA. He did end up in WCW. We did a we did a WCW pay-per-view where he got Yeah, the 97 Bash the Beach. He got that big push in that match. Yeah, but it was a cup of coffee. Like, he's... He beat Scott Hall, too. Here's the thing. Garza has one of the more interesting careers in the history of Mexican wrestling because he was such a sure thing that basically the entire Mexican wrestling industry spends 10 years arguing over who owns him. Yeah. Until he eventually found Peros Del Mal and says, like, I own myself and we're separate, which is sort of the beginning of Bullet Club. Like, they're who Bullet Club steals their idea from. So... That that's a whole other story for a whole other time. But Paris Mall is one of those. It's a story from Thousands Wrestling that never gets talked about because it's purely in Mexico. But we have to talk about it more at another day. Opening match for the Intercontinental Championship: Hunter Hearst Helmsley defends against Goldust. Um, Goldust has turned face in the lead up to this. They did an interview where Jerry Lawler asked him if he was, quote-unquote, a queer. Uh-huh. And Goldust heroically said no and punched Lawler in the face. Oh, my God. This is one of the weirdest <laughs> things. Look, guys, you're all... I'm sure everyone listening to this is a veteran of the law cast. So it's not going to be like this huge deal for me to tell you guys that I'm bisexual and I identify as a member of LGBT, LGBTQTA, all that stuff. So just, just to be clear, I have a very strong opinion about people using the word queer. And especially when it comes out of the mouth of someone like Jerry, the King fucking Lawler, <laughs> but it's more offensive, more, I tell you, like, I would let Jerry Lawler use the word queer on television a hundred times a show if it meant we didn't have things like Goldust being like, no, and that turns him babyface. Yeah. Like, really, like, when you dig into this, it's somehow even more offensive that, like, what makes him a good guy is he's like, of course I'm not gay. I was just playing the whole time, LOL, LOL. Like, gross. Like... Yeah. Not that I wanted Goldust to be a queer character in the first place, because that was bad, too. <laughs> I wish the Goldust character had never happened. That's I know a lot of people are super fond of it. Shame. That's the shame of this, is how many people are such big fans of Goldust. It's Dustin, it's Dustin Rhodes you should be a big fan of. Yeah, Dustin, Dustin Rhodes, Rhodes fucking rules. Dustin Rhodes is amazing. He made that gimmick work in a way that spoke to people, and that's great. But as somebody who grew up like I grew up, 
Goldust was a weight I carried around my neck for this entire era of wrestling. Like, that was the closest thing to queer representation we had in a wrestling ring ever at this point. Goldust was over for about six months, and somehow this character lasted for, like, 15 years. Like, I'm... 20 years. I'm going back and watching... Like, if you listen back to, like, old-ass episodes of the Lawcast, I reference that I've been watching, like, every Raw since, like, the first one all the way to the future. And I'm into 2003 now. And Goldust is still there, still doing the same gimmick. Yeah. I I mean, to me, this character was done when, like, Roddy Piper stripped him down to lingerie at WrestleMania 12. Like, that probably should have been the end of the character. This character was done the second that Scott Hall refused to do business with him. Like, yeah. just that moment where just like, hey, I'm not going to... This character was done before it ever got founded. This character was done on the pitch floor. Like, I hate Goldust. Hate with a violent passion. I'm still able to enjoy, like, Goldust and Booker T and all of that stuff. Because Dustin Rhodes is a genius, and that's great. But this is trash. The Just the trash is trash. Oh. <sighs> So the backstory here was that Helmsley was putting the moves on Marlena, which Goldust didn't appreciate. So now we've got a feud and this match for the IC title. Um, Goldust is out first. He's accompanied by Marlena. Helmsley is out second to his Ode to Joy entrance theme. And he's got Curtis Hughes backing him up. This is something I had absolutely no memory of. Man, what a cup like this is one of a couple of times that he has literally yeah. like a cup of coffee every, every time he was in the wwf it seemed like he'd be there for like two weeks and be gone he just he occupies a bodyguard shaped spot in <laughs> promoters minds and just his whole career is just people bringing him in like curtis uses the perfect bodyguard they bring him in is like actually he sucks damn that's all right <laughs> this one wasn't crazy because i mean they're going for million dollar man here like this is going to be his virgil but he just has no personality he's slow he can't do anything he's just a silent badass it's like big bubba rogers but he's not he just looks good in a suit he's not actually talented he's not gonna wrestle he's just gonna punch people I would argue that we just saw another bodyguard who made no absolutely no sense on the wcw show we just covered where, what the fuck was the name? Like Nitrous or something like that? Oh, yeah. Nitron. Yes. Nitron was better than Mr. Hughes. <sighs> yeah. Um, I'm amazed they didn't put him in the Nation of Domination. I mean, but he was right there, right? Just seems like the most obvious fit. Just have him be the bodyguard for Farouk, right? Instead of the 15 jabronis they have. We'll talk about the Nation in a minute. Though so I, um, I have a soft spot for the Nation of just like... How many random fucks can we put in a stable? <laughs> Who the hell were most of those people? I mean, just a bunch of people that Lawler called up from Memphis. They got they got a couple women here too. Like, don't remember them having women in the stable. It was I think it was literally like Vince walking through Titan Towers and pointing out every black person who worked for him and just like, "Hey, you're going to be in this stable." <laughs> Uh, Goldust jumps Helmsley in the aisle. He drops him on the guardrail. Uh, he goes for a 10 punch, but Helmsley counters with an atomic drop. Um, Goldust catapults Helmsley out of the ring and then grabs the steps and hits him with them. 
right in front of the referee. That's somehow not a disqualification. Yeah, that was pretty weird, huh? Like, you're allowed to throw people into the stairs, but you're not allowed to, like, hit them with the stairs. Yeah. Um, they fight on the floor. Helmsley posts Goldust. Um, he goes for the big knee, but Helmsley, or Goldust dodges. Helmsley, Helmsley's knee hits the apron. Uh, Goldust then works on Helmsley's knee out on the floor. JR points out this should be both a countout and a disqualification. I always love, like, angry they're not enforcing the rules, JR. I completely agree. Though, not, these days in AEW, he's taking it to, like, a total extreme. Oh, we're like, yeah, we're when he does the promotion. He's just like, this is fucking stupid. This isn't how yeah. this is supposed to work. They're not tagging in and out. Like, JR, like, you haven't seen a wrestling match in 10 years. Maybe catch up before you talk shit. Uh, Goldust puts on the figure four, but Helmsley manages to slip out. Uh, Goldust goes for a crossbody, but Helmsley ducks. Goldust crashes and burns down to the floor. Um, During the match, they just cut to the crowd where Todd Pettengill interviews country music star Colin Ray. Are you familiar with the music of Colin Ray? I am not as unaware of country music as you might think that I am, but I have no idea who Colin Ray is. Totally unaware of this. I really hate these cut-ins that that Todd Pettengill is doing throughout the show. Like, not only is Todd Pettengill one of the worst, like, interviewers of random people that I've ever seen, because he just literally walks up to him and just like, hey, uh, you want to do this really awkward thing? And they're like, I guess. And, like, they always seem miserable to be talking to him. And then, yeah. like, literally, it's while the match is going the on. match is going on. Why can't we do this between matches? Um, Helmsley injures his knee while he's attempting a backdrop. Uh, Goldust goes to the top, but Helmsley shoves the referee into the ropes to crotch him. Uh, Helmsley goes for the superplex. Goldust throws him off, but then misses an elbow drop. Uh, Hughes throws the IC belt into the ring. Marlena distracts Helmsley with, with a kiss, which allows Goldust to hit Triple H with the belt, but that only gets two. Uh, Goldust gets distracted by Hughes, and they hit the pedigree for the win. Um, it was an okay match. It was, a little, it was like 16, 17 minutes long, which was probably too long for this opener. But that's just kind of what they did with Triple H at this point, is yeah. that like every show just had a 17-minute Triple H match. And I had... I had a revelation while I was watching this, and that's that Dolph Ziggler is just what Triple H would have been if he had never stopped being Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Yeah. Like, if you had just never stopped having 17-minute mid-card matches, that's what Dolph Ziggler's career is. Like, if he had never become Triple H. Sounds about right. Yeah. Crowd was not really behind Goldust as a face. No. I don't think they ever really... Of course, of course they weren't. Like, like what's to like? <laughs> Either you think that he's a weirdo, or you probably still darkly suspect that he's gay if you're the homophobe that most of the audience was at this point. And at minimum, he's a sexual predator. Yeah, at minimum, he's a sexual predator, or he doesn't really wrestle that exciting a style, and he's got the hot valet, which tanks every baby face. Yeah. It's just, it's it's a disaster, no matter how you look at it. No, it's. I feel like it's just a shame we missed out on like Dustin Rhodes getting to really put his. I mean, the other problem is he's got he's dealing with his drug and alcohol issues in this time period, so he's not 
up to having the true work in Dustin Rhodes matches that he could. But just imagine the natural Dustin Rhodes versus Triple H versus Steve Austin versus yeah. versus Shawn Michaels versus Mankind. Like, what could have been? Like, he could have been a genuine star for them. Whereas six months from here, Goldust is done. Like, done, done. Do you think he's a big baby face or an ass-kicking ass heel? I kind of feel like he's a baby face. I kind yeah. of feel like he never really... Like, he he's found himself... Ba- this thing, he's got the baby face fire. Like he's got yeah, some of the best comebacks ever in wrestling. He was never a great heel. Like, and really, the only time he ever was a heel in his career was that, like, two years with Goldust. Like, the entire rest of his career has been You're, a you're forgetting face. Black Rain. Yes. Well, I'm not forgetting it. I'm trying to put it away. <laughs> it's in the cage in my mind with his rat. Uh, we get pre-taped comments from Bret Hart. He says that he's a marked man tonight, but that he has to win to fulfill his destiny. And then Mankind says tonight is a chance for him to hurt a lot of people all at once. So we didn't get like proper Rumble promo here, but we got a few of them throughout the night. God, mankind is so goddamn good. Yeah. And like, I, love, I think like freak tortured soul mankind, just a great character. I think like Vince even says on commentary, like after that, like, wow, that was good. Like so something like that. He's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Somewhere in here, he's starting to really buy into Mick Foley. Like, has anyone ever done more with less? Like he got the equivalent of gold dust in a different way, except he makes it work. Yeah, Vince was literally Vince literally told Jim Ross like I'm going to sign him because I want you to understand like the mistake you're making here. Like I want you to learn from this when he fails. And he should have failed. It's a dumb gimmick. Like the we love it because of how great it turned out to be in the performance. Anyone else have pulled that off? No, no one else in the history of wrestling. Yeah. And that's only because Mick Foley was basically an insane person. Yeah. Foley is just a goddamn genius. And this is a shoot. And they like, know when to spin the character off in a different direction and make him more human. Yeah. Like, it, it's a lot of coincidental stuff that winds up working because of a masterful performance. But this is a trash gimmick. Ooh, next up, we've got Ahmed Johnson versus Farouk. Um, I love this. Is this. still the early <laughs> days of the Nation of Domination. <laughs> Farouk has like 15 guys with him. Uh, How, I know okay. a few of them. How cool is this entrance, though? Because like Farouk comes out, he's got his lawyer, yeah. he's got his bodyguard, he's got his protege, he's got two white rappers wrapping him to the ring. Like that's stupid. He's got a but, hot woman with some big hair. But it's just like this entourage yeah. of just like Farouk and everyone that's part of his stable and then just Ahmed Johnson alone against the nation. I, lo- I love the rapping entrance actually. I thought this was great. As we've said before, I don't understand why they're white rappers. No. There's a couple of black people who know how to rap too in the world. You could probably found some, but whatever. Whatever. I think it was very important to them that this not be an all-black stable. And then later it became an all-black stable. Yeah. Like, but. I don't... They were so afraid of this, but they still did it. Which is the weirdest thing, right? Like, 
I can't imagine a more heat-seeking angle you could do than a black power stable yeah. in the Southern Wrestling promotion. Like, you're going to do a black power stable match in Texas in the 90s. And, like, they come so close to going all the way with it, but they kind of pull up because they're just like, eh, we're not ready for this level of heat. This is like Sergeant Slaughter heat. Like, eh. Yeah. Like, if they had gone all the way with this, this would have been death threats. This would have been a problem. This was not the right time for it, but it feels like a couple years on either side of this, Farouk could have been the world champion with this gimmick. Probably. And, like, you don't have to push, like, the black power angle of it as much as they even... Even as much as they chose to do. It can just be the trappings of it and just have be a wrestling stable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, you can tone it back and it's just like, we get it without it being so explicit. But like giving Farouk all this stuff is great because Ron Simmons, bless his heart. He has a lot of amazing qualities, but he's not like a charismatic presence, <laughs> but by giving him like all of yeah. this, he seems like such a big deal. He looks so cool coming out in his black trench coat with the black hat, like all the dudes around him, and they all throw up that they all throw up the fist at the same time. It's it's very cool. Like it's yeah. it's, it's like a like a video game final boss with all his henchmen around him. It's so cool, honestly, it would have eventually turned him face had they kept going with it like that. Like, even with it being what it is, it's still too cool. And then there's Ahmed. Yeah. Ahmed Johnson, who... I think they still really believe in, but they're starting to realize he's just going to be too injury-prone. He's... They put the IC title on him. He had to forfeit it. Uh, They... You know, they did an injury angle where Farouk heard him saying he was an Uncle Tom. Yep. I love that this is the second time I've had to say some words. You can tell I'm very uncomfortable (laughs) saying out loud. That's the uh, problem with being the host there, Steve. You got to say the words. Yeah. You you need to understand. Too far. I got to tell you. As Ahmed Johnson fan number one, um, I, I can't completely describe what it was that like made me a fan of his at the time. Ahmed Johnson sucks on like a whole lot of levels. He's so he looks so cool. He's so big and muscular, and he does all these crazy things. Like he just fucking planches out to the floor. The Pearl River Plunge is a cool ass awesome. finish. And I can't believe he didn't fuck. kill. I can't believe he didn't kill anybody with that. That's a hard move. Like not to skip ahead, but he does the pro river plunge to a non wrestler through a table in this match, and like I thought he was gonna kill him. Like there's a moment where it doesn't look like he's gonna get him all the way around, and I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> uh oh. It's just, um, but like he's just. He's got this aura that's just so cool that like it's actually not dissimilar to Sid's where it's just like he doesn't give a shit and he's full of charisma and he's just going to kill people. Yeah, And there's just this you never he's like this wild animal in the ring. You just never know what he's going to do. 
Like well, half the time it's stuff that hurts himself, but something crazy is always going to happen. Well, unfortunately, like it, it almost it hurts to say the animal thing because that's Vince goes back to that so much that it's incredibly uncomfortable. Because, like, that's, like, his go-to thing. It's, like, he's like an unchained animal. It's, like, oh, Vince, no, no, please don't say that. No. Um, Ahmed jumps Farouk before he can get his entrance gear off. Uh, Farouk gets a shot to Ahmed's kidney to take over. And then he hits him with a chair on the floor. Again, apparently there's just no disqualifications tonight. Thank God. <laughs> Well, I spoke too soon because this match ends in a disqualification when everybody runs in the ring and beats up Ahmed. And and then there's just a long, long period of Ahmed beating everyone's ass. (laughs) Yeah, Ahmed takes on like 15 people. They all start running away. Everybody tries to run. He grabs D'Lo and like drags him back to ringside and hits him with the Pearl River plunge through the announce table. And it's so bad because he tries to get him up, but at the last minute he realizes he can't. So he winds up like throwing him through sideways. Like he just kind of like turns him at the last minute. This is before D'Lo loses all the weight. So like halfway up, you can see the look on Ahmed's face like, nope, this ain't going to (laughs) happen. And these are the old tables that literally have like the monitor and everything on them. They're real tables. Yeah. This is before they, you know, built like, whatever you'd call the later ones that are just kind of like cardboard cutouts of a table. Half the danger is when you go through the table, like two big ass monitors and a bunch of pencils and shit are flying at your face. Uh, We go backstage for a quick Terry Funk promo and then an interview with Farouk who yells at the nation for abandoning him. I got to tell you, like I love the Ahmed Johnson versus the nation storyline It had, like, the way that it ended was supremely goddamn stupid. But, like, wasn't that segment a lot more fun than it should have been? Oh, yeah. That wasn't bad at all. Like, just, like, watching one heroic baby face fight off, like, 25 random fucks is just always going to be fun for me. Uh, Next up, we've got Vader against The Undertaker. Uh, Vader is out first by himself. No Jim Cornette. Uh, Cornette got tombstoned by The Undertaker a few weeks before this and is gone for a while. Like, comes back uh, sometime in 1997 to, like, manage the big fat guys for, like, a week. And then they disappear. And then he does, like, the Jim, like the Cornette's commentaries thing in the fall where he just kind of does, like shoot promos and then they don't bring him back until the next year for the nwa invasion so like he's kind of out of the picture for a while here as well he should be because what the hell else is he supposed to do there's got to be some people on this roster who could use managers i mean he's gone he's gone from being he was a top manager for several years he's managing yokozuna owen hart bulldog like was always kind of in the main event mix for a while there. And now he's gone and DiBiase's gone too. So they've run off like two of their main heel managers. This is, I'd say when they really start moving away from managers. Does it feel weird that they don't put him with Sid just to give him like Blatherio something to do? Yeah. I don't know why Sid. it is interesting that Sid doesn't have a manager. Cause Sid was cutting such great promos. He didn't need one, right? Exactly. 
and I mean the pop when he turned on Cornette and power bombed him would have been insane. Oh God, yeah. Um, Undertaker is out second. I noticed he's got a really cool wind effect with his music here. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, that was awesome. Like I think I feel like it's almost like the only time they ever use it. Yeah, this might be it. Um, there's no Paul Bear here. You know, Paul Bear turned on the Undertaker a few months ago and is managing mankind and um, has not started. We don't. We haven't had any hints of the Kane storyline yet. That doesn't come for a few months. But you know, we know Paul Bear is going to be up in the Undertaker's business at some point here. Yep. <clears throat> Um, they start, Vader keeps knocking Taker down, Taker keeps sitting up, uh, Taker gets the advantage as Vader telegraphs a backdrop and Taker hits him with a Famouser. That was weird, right? Yeah, this is a fun experimental phase for The Undertaker, this is when he's first starting to really work. Like, I feel like he finally come. like, he must have begged Vince just to be like, please let me just wrestle matches. Yeah. I miss this is wrestling where the, this matches. Is like where, this is where the chains are coming off, and he's starting to do what he can actually do, showing how athletic he is. The whole alternate universe Undertaker world sort of starts to dissipate, and like the wall comes down, and he's able to actually do it. And he just seems so happy in the ring during this period, just to be able to like every time he's in the ring with mankind, he you can like feel the joy coming from him that he can actually do shit. That he gets to, like, be the big guy and walk the ropes and, like, be athletic and not have to just, like, be smothering people with ether to get him to... And just, like, literally dragging people to watchable matches. Like, it's just... It must be such a relief for him. Scoop slam by Undertaker and then the big leg drop. Pin him, brother. (laughs) Uh, Vader kicks out. JR slips in a nice dig at Hogan on commentaries. He says, I've never seen anybody deliver the leg drop like The Undertaker. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Vader hits a low blow right in front of the ref. Again, no disqualification. Nothing wrong with a low blow. <laughs> Pengill then interviews a fan from Minnesota who saved up her babysitting money so she could afford a trip to the show. This is one of the most uncomfortable interviews I've ever seen. <laughs> Where Todd Pentonkill is interviewing basically an 11-year-old girl. Yeah. And he's just like, tell me more, tell me more. And she's just like, I already told you. Um, I'm just here, I guess. Uh, Vader hits a body avalanche off the second rope. Tager makes a comeback. He uh, gets out of a Vader headlock with a side suplex. Uh, he then misses a leg drop. Vader retakes control. Vader hits the power bomb for a two count. Uh, Taker sits up and hits a jump in lariat. Um, he then does the rope walk as Paul Bear comes down the aisle. There's a choke slam from Undertaker. He notices Bear on the floor and goes after him. Hits a haymaker, throws Bear into the ring. Uh, he goes for a choke slam on Bear, but has to break it when he sees Vader get up. Vader then drops Taker on the rail and Taker struggles to get back to the ring. He gets hit with the urn by Bear. Um, Taker hits, uh, Vader hits the Vader bomb and gets the one, two, three. Huge upset uh, as Vader gets the win there. I don't think anybody saw that coming. 
it's just a shame because this should have been like at least the start of something for Vader, right? Like he gets a win over the Undertaker. That's huge. Yeah. But it just feels like they've killed him so dead already that even this isn't really going to do it for him. Yeah, it, it goes nowhere. Like, yeah, he's in he's in the final four match the next month. Then he's teaming with Mankind at WrestleMania. And then he gets his ass kicked by Shamrock at one of the In Your House pay-per-views in the spring. Which is a shame, too, because if you made a list of, like, the greatest big men of all time, like, the greatest working big men, like, these two would be on it. Like, this is a genuine yeah. dream match. And it doesn't... But just because of where they are in their careers, like, Taker's not really seen that way yet. And Vader's so, like, mailing it in and on the decline that, like, it's a shame that we never got a match between, like, a motivated Vader and, like, a working Undertaker, you know? Uh, Taker chokeslams the referee for not seeing Bear's interference. The most protected I've ever seen anyone be on a chokeslam ever. Like, he, like, guides him down like a baby. Uh, then we get pre-recorded comments from Steve Austin, uh, good promo, and then the British Bulldog, who says he's going to win, quote, because I'm bizarre. What the fuck was this about? Was this, like, <laughs> supposed no to be idea. the start of something else for him? I don't know. Because um, he, like, shouts it over his shoulder on his way into the building. Like, it was very weird. It's almost like he didn't know he was being recorded. And it's just like, hey, Bulldog, why do you think you're going to win? Because I'm bizarre. Is that what he said? Was it I'm bizarre? Or is his accent being weird? But I don't know. What else would he be saying? I'm the czar. I'm the captions. The captions on WWE Network said bizarre. <laughs> so, I mean. Okay. Yeah. guess that's it. <laughs> uh next we've got our six-man lucha tag match as heavy metal jerry estrada and fuerza guerrera take on uh canic hector garza and pero aguayo guys triple a was founded on the idea that wrestling in mexico did not have to be a bunch of like fat heavyweight dudes wrestling slow ass matches like the idea was these like middleweights and lightweights who wrestled this faster more exciting style were like the ticket of the future and that's the entire concept that AAA was based on that like your conans and your guerreros and your art bars and like your octagons like those were the wave of the future and yet here we are this is the match they've chosen to represent AAA to the american audience this garbage match full of old ass men. Woof. Like, Kanek, Paraguayo, and Fuerza Guerrero, they're not terrible at this point in their careers, but nobody's watched. If you don't know who they are already, they're not going to fucking impress you. Like, the fact that they didn't just make this Hector Garza and Paraguayo versus Heavy Metal and Jerry Estrada doesn't make any sense. Uh. Absolutely no reaction for anyone or anything in this match. No, who the fuck are any of these people, like, to anyone? <laughs> JR pretty much takes over the commentary as Vince and King have no interest in anything that's going on here. Literally, like, Jerry Lawler just pops in every so often to be like, heavy metal? He looks like a metal singer. Like, yeah, Jerry, thanks. <laughs> Thank God you're here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for, for that stirring commentary. Uh... And then Vince, just... 
Yeah, Vince wakes up when Hector Garza does anything because he's just like, Ooh. oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, crowd dies for this. It goes ten minutes, just real slow down here in the middle of the show. Even the part which they use to this day, where just everyone does their dives and stuff, even yeah. that doesn't get a reaction because like. A, WWE fans are not used to seeing anything like this, so they don't know how to react to it. Like, WCW dealt with that in the early ages, in the early part of building their cruiserweight division. It's just, it was hard to get people to understand what they were watching. This is the equivalent of, like, Road Wild, where, like, you're trying to put on this match in front of people who have no idea what they're looking at. Um, Aguayo gets the pin for his team with a double foot stomp off the top on Kanek. Uh, did not work. This was a this was a swing and a miss. Yeah, big old swing and a big old miss. And like, I don't necessarily think that if they had had the right people in there, it still would have worked because I just don't think this was the right situation for this. But the way I, that they put it across is trash. I think you can pull off. Uh, I think I, I think like a good like six man car crash lucha match is pretty universal. Yeah, but they just didn't have those people then. Like, even Hector's not ready yet. Like, even, like, Cybernetico and Latin Lover and Heavy Metal, like, they're just coming on. Like, none of them are ready for this. (sighs) Um, Fink announces the attendance as 60,477. Hell of an achievement. Yeah. And it's uh, Royal Rumble time. Uh, We got... Crush out as our number one entrant. Ahmed Johnson is number two. So Crush is in the nation. So we've got a heated brawl between them to start. Uh, fake Razor Ramon is out number three with no music. I think they just blew his cue. Vince makes like kind of a tongue in cheek comment about like there being problems with the clock. Cause I think the guys in the trucks forgot to put it up on the screen. Yeah. Uh, let me be honest with you. When I saw him running out to the ring, there was a part of me, just for a second, that was like, oh shit, is Scott Hall in this match? <laughs> and it was such lose a... track of where we are in the timeline. Yeah, we skip back and forth so much yeah. that I forget sometimes. And like, there's just a moment, and then I saw like Rick Bogner's stupid ass walking out. I'm like, oh. <laughs> or he gets <laughs> tossed after about 10 seconds by Ahmed. Good riddance. Yeah, just hilarious. Uh, Farouk comes out, which leads Ahmed to eliminate himself and chase Farouk to the back. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, Phineas Godwin is our number four entrant. Uh, Steve Austin is number five and business picks up. Um, on a side note, thank God they've got entrance themes because I think 96 was the first time they did entrance music for the Rumble and it's not the same without it. It's unthinkable that it took so long. Like, it's not a thing without the entrance. These days, like, ha- the the rumble is just the entrances. Like, yeah. what happens in the ring is irrelevant. Yeah, like, we're just waiting for the next entrance. Yeah, when it's, before when it's, like, buzzer goes and, like, five seconds pass and then we see somebody jogging to the ring, just not the same. And, but, like, to have Austin's music hit here yeah. is such a big deal. And, like, he doesn't get a ton of reaction when his music hits and he comes out. But, like, the reaction to him grows over the course of the match. Yeah. 
Uh, Phineas throws out Crush, and then Phineas eats a stunner and gets tossed himself, so Austin is all alone in the ring. Um, Bart this is cool Gun- as shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, always, I always love when somebody manages to clear the ring and play King of the Mountain. Fuck yeah. And this is just, like, the surest way to push somebody. Like, I don't think anybody who's ever done this spot didn't get over. Um, the new Nexus? <laughs> fair point. <laughs> that was odd. That's the only time they've done that where one group, like, banded together and ran the show. And it should have been so cool, but it was all ended by Booker T. <laughs> the world's shittiest stable doing it. Yep. Um, Bart Gunn is our sixth entrant. He manages to hit a rocker dropper, but then Austin comes back and clotheslines him out. Uh, Jake Roberts is number seven. Uh, he, of course, was beaten by Austin in the King of the Ring tournament final in 1996. This was his uh, record sixth Royal Rumble appearance, and he does manage to last the interval, and British Bulldog is the eighth entrant. Right as Austin eliminates Roberts. And this is when they start to build to that hot Austin versus Bulldog WrestleMania match. Uh, Bulldog beats up Austin, hits him with the running power slam. Uh, Piroth is number nine, so that's our first AAA entrant of many to come. And the reaction is non-existent. Uh, Sol- the Sultan is number 10. He's got Iron Sheik backing him up and no Bob Backlund for some reason. The Sultan is one of those characters that, like, if you didn't go back and watch these shows, you would forget ever existed. I had no idea he was around this early. I thought he was somebody they just debuted, like, two weeks before WrestleMania for Rock to beat. I'm gonna say, the only reason that character exists is for The Rock to beat him at WrestleMania. <laughs> Uh, Mil Mascaras is a surprise entrant at number 11. He gets a really good reaction. He gets one of the bigger pops of the match. It's actually one of those reactions where, like, he comes out and, like, it starts to build. It's like people yeah. in the arena are clearly like, dude, that's fucking Mil Mascaras. The first thing, yeah, they don't realize it at first. It's, like, slow growing. It's kind of a murmur. And then, like, you see people standing up being like, oh, my God, it's actually him. Like, it's hard to overstate what Mil Mascaras means. Yeah. On an international scale. He was arguably the first international wrestler. The first wrestler that went everywhere in the world and got over. Like, he he's a name in Japan. He's a name in North America. He's a name in Canada. He's a name in Mexico. He's a name everywhere. He's arguably the first ever wrestler to do that. Yeah. And that's why he's still wrestling today. That's insane. And he's I mean, still he's, drawing houses. He's old as shit here, and it's 20 years ago. But the funny thing is, like, he's old as shit here. He's moving. Like, oh, he's, he looks great when he gets in there. You can see why. He's one of those guys that, like, when the right light turns on, like, he turns it on. And otherwise, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Like, he gets in there, and he's, like, running around and springing all over the place. He looks like a million bucks. Yeah. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley is out number 12 as Bulldog eliminates Salton. Uh, Owen Hart is number 13. Him and Bulldog are the tag champions, so you've got them in together. Uh, Bulldog and Austin struggle on the ropes, and Owen sneaks in and eliminates Bulldog. Ha! Dumbass. (laughs) Uh, Goldust is our 14th entrant. 
And then Cibernetico is number 15, and we're halfway home. He is our youngest competitor tonight at only 20 years of age and one of the only people on the show who's still active. For good reason. And he's he's still going strong. He never really got over to the extent that they thought he was going to, but he's still very active. Uh, wild man Mark Miro is number 16. Um, Cibernetico is eliminated by Piroth and Mascaris, and then Mascaris eliminates Piroth. And then Mascaris does a dive off the top rope to the floor and is eliminated because this was just the most elegant way to get him out of the match without him having to actually be eliminated by somebody because that wasn't going to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, Mel Mascaris does not do jobs. No, Mel Mascaris does even not even sell. He doesn't do things that look like jobs. He doesn't. There's a reason why he became one of the the first international star, and that's because he would go into a new territory, refuse to put anyone over, beat everybody, and then leave. Asshole. That's, that's he's the biggest asshole of all time, but it worked. He never lost his heat because no one ever beat him. I'd say universally respected, but universally loathed within the business. I'm not the only person like that. <laughs> yeah. Brother. Brother. Mm. Um, uh, Goldust eliminates Helmsley with a clothesline. Latin Lover is number 17. God, a lot of AAA guys. None of them are getting any reaction. You got to imagine that Vince is sitting at the table like, why the fuck did I bother? <laughs> we spent a lot of time on this and it got us nowhere. Um, Owen eliminates Goldust with a drop kick. Uh, Farouk comes out number 18 and Ahmed Johnson shows up with a massive two by four and uses it to eliminate Farouk. In like the most awkward, because like he's trying not to hit him in the head. Yeah. But he like Farouk's not selling it right, so he's just kind of like hitting him in the shoulder with it. I don't think Ron Simmons was a big fan of working with Ahmed Johnson. Also, this was an outrageously large two by four. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? They went to yeah, the gimmick like the store and they bought tree. like they bought like the joke two by four. Um. Uh, Miro and Owen fight on the ropes and Austin sneaks up and dumps them both. So he's cleared the ring again. Love it. Badass moment for Austin. Like how long is he, what he's been in there like 20 minutes now. Maybe and more, more like 30 minutes. Well, it's like 90 second intervals. So yeah, 20, 25 minutes. At one point, Vince says that he's been in there for 45 minutes, and it's right around here. And it's just like, no, he hasn't. The match hasn't been going for 45 minutes. Uh, Savio Vega's number 19, you know, old rival of Austin. They're doing a decent job of, like, each time the ring clears out, it's somebody who has a history with Austin coming out. Like, it's very reminiscent of Ric Flair 1992. And Austin whoops his fucking ass. Yeah. I mean, that's the big thing is, yeah, he kicks the shit out of Savio and dumps him in like a minute. Like, this isn't the same as the way they did it with Diesel. Like, on paper, it's the exact same as the Diesel push, right? He gets 10 eliminations during the thing. He lasts forever. But the difference is, is that, like, he's not just dominating people and bullying them out. He's just, like, beating everyone's ass like a rabid man. 
God, he fucking rules. And like, they have a hundred percent built this match around him. Like, yes. this is not Bret Hart's match. Like, you would think Bret Hart, the baby face, would come in early and last the whole time. Instead, it's Steve Austin being heroic and like fighting through 30 other men to get his shot at the title. They're pushing him like this force of nature. Yeah. Like when you get in there with them, it's like getting in there with a wolf who's starving and he's looking for the last scrap of meat. Like he's, he's just stu- got this fury to him. He's unstoppable. And we're about to get to something that I genuinely hate. And it's my one complaint about the entire Austin push. And we'll get to it in a second. Ooh, the real Double J, Jesse James, is at number 20. What's he been doing? Spend my days working hard on the Oh, my God. God, just trash. <laughs> the real Double J, Jesse James. Imagine watching this show now and then someone telling you, yeah, 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 he's one of the power players in WWE to this day. Yeah. He ran SmackDown for a while. Yeah. He is gone in less than a minute. And then Austin you know, sits in the corner, checks his watch, does some push-ups. He's on fire. And then we get number 21, Bret Hart. And this is the moment that I hate. And let me paint you a word picture here. Like, Austin is full of confidence he's full of anger and viciousness like he's basically people are rolling into the ring he's stomping a mud hole in him and immediately throwing him out like he's unstoppable and he's been in this feud with bret hart where he's literally like throwing dirt on bret hart's legacy like i don't give a damn about bret hart i'll stalk him till the day you I put die. a letter s in front of hitman you got my exact opinion of bret hart He's, like, charging into locker rooms to attack Bret Hart out of nowhere. Like, he's unhinged. He can't be stopped. He's a serial killer. But here, Bret Hart's music hits, and they zoom in on Steve Austin's face. And there's, like, a delay, like a one-second delay. And then he throws his hands up over his head, like, oh, no, not Bret Hart. And But, like, in such a hokey way. And it's not, like, sarcastic. It's very seriously meant to be – it's like a throwback to, like, Hollywood Steve Austin where he'd be like, oh, I'm the chicken shit heel and I'm going to get my ass kicked now. Oh, no. And it's such a fake moment coming from Stone Cold Steve Austin. It doesn't feel right. It's completely anti what the character is. Like, Bret Hart, Bret Hart would not cause that reaction in Steve Austin. Steve Austin would be licking his fucking chops at the idea of getting at <laughs> Bret Hart. Like, thank God, finally, Bret Hart's here so I can whoop his ass. And it's just this weird fake moment. And then immediately they go back to Austin being his normal self and, like, wanting to fight Bret Hart. But they just, they close up on it so much. And I'm like, it's clearly something they told him to do. And it's just not right for the character at all. Uh, Brett comes in hot. He hits an inverted atomic drop and a clothesline, then gets Austin, the sharpshooter. Entrant number 22 is Jerry the King Lawler. This is supposed to be a surprise, but they accidentally advertised him just because marketing department didn't talk to creative about the fact that this was going to be a surprise. He jumps in the ring. Bret Hart punches him. He jumps out of the ring. <laughs> this is so great. Okay, so... 
his music plays. He gets up from the aunt's table. He goes, you know, I always say it takes a king. And he takes his headset off and he gets in the ring, gets punched and knocked over the top by Brett. And then he goes back to the announce table and finishes his sentence to Noah King. <laughs> and he sits back down and goes back to calling the show. And then proceeds to pretend as if he was never in the match. <laughs> like Vince and JR keep pointing out to him that he got into the match and got eliminated. And he's like, what are you talking about? That is just the best. Fake Diesel is number 23. Holy shit, was Glenn Jacobs in great shape at this point. He looks like a walking boulder. Like He looks so much better than Kevin Nash ever did. And he's he's a lot bulkier than he was as Kane. Like, he slimmed down a lot to play Kane. Like, here, he's just like a giant of a man. He is jacked. Kind of amazing that they didn't find anything for him to do until Kane. No, how can they keep giving him such shitty gimmicks? Also, like, thank God they put the mask on him because he's ugly as the day is long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Terry Funk is number 24. Rocky Mayavia is number 25. Mankind is number 26. Flash Funk is number 27. We're filling the ring back up for the stretch run here. Yep. Um, Brett hits Austin with a pile driver, but he can't get him over the top. Uh, Vader is out number 28. Henry Godwin is number 29. And then Undertaker is number 30, and he is the obvious favorite. It seems kind of weird. Like, I understand why you have Vader and Taker come out this late. Like, it makes a lot of sense. But, like, Vader, after looking so strong versus Undertaker, doesn't do much in this. Now. And you kind of think you give him more dominant stuff to do. Taker comes in on fire, though. Yeah. He immediately choke slams Vader and Austin. That was very nice. So we've got Taker, Austin, Brett, Vader, Mankind, Diesel, Rocky, uh, Funk, Henry Godwin, and Flash Funk remaining here. Is that like eight guys? Yeah, three jabronis and the future of the company. <laughs> yeah. uh, Vader recovers to eliminate Flash with a press slam. Taker throws Henry Godwin over the top. Mankind gets Rocky in the mandible claw and kind of forces him over the top rope. Um, Mankind dumps Funk. Undertaker comes up behind Mankind and eliminates him. Mankind and Funk then start to brawl on the floor, which distracts the referees. Brett sneaks up behind Austin and throws him out, but the referees don't see it, and Austin sneaks back into the ring. This is one of the coolest spots in the history of the Royal Rumble. Yeah. Because not only does he get dumped out and then immediately get back in the ring, just like the thinking ahead of that, of just like Austin's just going to pretend that shit never happened, whatever. Yeah, like he gets thrown out and he kind of just like stands there for a second, looks around and realizes none of the referees are over there. And none of them have seen what's going on because they're trying to break up the fight between mankind and funk. And then he just slides back into the ring like nothing happened. And then he dumps everybody in the ring. <laughs> yeah, in about 10 seconds. Um, Brett 
eliminates it. So Austin sneaks back in and he eliminates both Vader and Undertaker who were fighting up against the ropes. And then Brett eliminates Diesel. And then Austin sneaks up behind Brett and dumps him and he wins the Rumble in a total shocker. How fantastic is it that fake Diesel made it into the final four? <laughs> yeah, what? He was third, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, why didn't he make it into the final four match? Yeah, man. That's that's what it should have been. I guess because Brett eliminated him. Like, he didn't get screwed by Austin. But, like, Undertaker, Vader, and Brett did. But it's just so fantastic. And then to see, like, Austin celebrating and the refs raising his hands while, like, Vince and JR are like, you motherfucker, you yeah. didn't win. Um, yeah. Um, it's a replay in wrestling. Nope. Referee's decision is final. Uh, Brett goes after the referees as Austin is limping to the back. And then Brett goes after Vince, which is great. Like, he makes, like, a beeline for Vince, like, as the show's going off the air. And it's just, if you're sitting at home watching, there's a good chance you don't know why he would go after Vince. Like, yeah, Vince, Vince McMahon is, is just, you know, a milk toast play-by-play man. And he, like, grabs him by the collar. And it's just like, what the fuck, Vince? Yeah, he's like, what are you going to do about this? What are we going to do? It's just such a brilliant finish. It further establishes Bret Hart's bitterness and that feeling like he's getting screwed over because like, it's not Vince's fault. It's not Bret's fault, but he did get screwed over, but he's such a whiny crybaby about it. It puts Austin over as this brilliant opportunist. Who's just like a snake. He'll do whatever it takes to win. It gives Vader and Taker a reason to be in the title match. It's everything. Like we talk all the time about like when you do it right like, one match can set up, like, three months' worth of matches. Yes. And this is one of those examples. Like, they set up the next six months of their business right here in the last five minutes of this match. Yeah. And I love the way all these stories intersect with each other. And, like, a month from now, everyone in the main event's going to be feuding because of one night, this night. Like, yeah. everyone hates each other. Everyone's gunning for the belt because this establishes the entire main event scene as feuding with each other. It's brilliant. So, yeah, they use the controversy there to set up the um, final four match for the February in your house. Basically, they were going to redo the final four of the Rumble with Brett Austin, Taker, and Vader. Winner would get the title shot at WrestleMania. Fate intervenes as Sean has his knee injury, loses his smile, and gives up the title. So instead, the final four match ends up being for the world title. But everything works out just the way it was supposed to. Because ultimately, the person who looks like a hero in this match because of the coincidence, who looks like a hero in that match because of the coincidence, and who looks like a hero at WrestleMania is the person they had no intention of pushing in yeah. that way, Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's incredible how the stars aligned. And like he was, like, sixth on their priority list, and he keeps, like, they keep bumble-fucking their way into pushing him on top until it sticks. And they're like, oh, shit, okay. And But he put himself in position for it because yes. he was always there. He was always on time. He was always in shape. 
know, he always busted his ass in the ring, did the best promos he could, watched every match at the curtain so he could learn as much as he could, you know, was engaged and would pitch ideas to Vince and to the creative team, you know, would give feedback on the ideas they gave him. I mean, he just did everything right to put himself in that position where they felt like when we need somebody, okay, we can count on Steve. Let's give Steve a shot here. You've heard a million times Vince McMahon's grab the brass ring thing, right? Where he's just always perpetually looking for someone who's so hungry, who every time he gets an opportunity will hit it out of the park so significantly. And what he's talking about when he says that is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Somebody who he had no intention of pushing it that way, but became undeniable because of how hard he pushed, because of how amazing he was at every opportunity. He forced Vince to make him the man. That's never happened before or since, where like somebody forced their way into that spot against Vince's will. And it arguably will never happen again, because Vince does not reward people for having no. that strong a personality now. Times have changed now. He's no, looking and, for company men. But for this was Austin's last shot. You know, if this doesn't work out, he's going back to Texas and he's going to be driving a truck. Like, and, this is it for him. And this is a time where Vince is desperately looking for an answer. And every time he looks around the roster, everyone's letting him down and failing except for one man yeah. who hits it out of the goddamn park every single time. And he's the only guy in the main event who can wrestle without getting hurt for five minutes because everyone else keeps getting hurt or keeps like having these like personal issues. Everyone's a headache for Vince McMahon except for Steve Austin. Yeah. And that's what they find. And then when Austin starts getting over, it just isn't even a question at that point. Like, who's the least pain in my ass and also the most over man in the company? Fuck it. We're going with him. <laughs> Got to keep giving him the ball. He keeps running with it. Arguably, he never once dropped the ball in his entire time on top. No. And that like, that hunger is such a remarkable change from you know what got him fired from WCW was like Bischoff called him his house like to ask him to come to TV and do a promo while he was hurt. And he like just told his wife like now just tell him now tell him like i'm not here whatever i've often said on this podcast and in life in general that all great art starts with anger yeah and especially when it comes to professional wrestling everyone who makes it during the attitude era makes it because they're mad steve austin has something to prove to everyone mick foley is so fucking mad that he's driving himself literally insane to the extent that like the mankind character is like a shoot of like, he's literally like driving himself into madness, trying to figure out how to make it feeling like a failure. Triple H feeling like he can't get through the glass ceiling, just like losing his mind with ambition. That's what it takes. And Shawn Michaels, his depression, his anxiety, and his having to carry this, shitty fucked up company after all his friends have left him and everybody in the locker room hates him and brett keeps undermining him the fans won't accept him and he keeps bumping up against this like glass ceiling of like what vince wants his top baby face to be and it just drives him crazy until he just starts acting out like it's all through wrestling the people who got so fucking fed up 
that they just pushed their way to the front of the line are the people who succeeded every single time. And that's not to say those are good people necessarily or that that's how it's supposed to work. But that's one of the, like you can see how much it makes Vince angry that there's none of that in the business now with the people in WWE. Like people are very comfortable. Nobody ever yeah. leaves. Like what they anybody, always make. What does anyone in that company have to be mad about? Say every once in a while, like the last time somebody was genuinely angry and it came through was Punk, and that's what made yeah. the pipe bomb work. Is that well, he I'd was, argue I'd yeah. argue Dean Ambrose. Yeah, but they didn't let him do anything. It's just not that company anymore. Exactly. Like they just let him walk and he took his anger somewhere else and got crazy over like AEW is founded on Cody Rhodes's anger at Vince McMahon for not seeing a star in him. That's what makes this business run. And you can see right here who has the passion and who doesn't. And it's Austin every time. The Rock won't become The Rock until he gets yeah. mad at the fans. Yeah. <laughs> until yeah, he feels until the betrayed. Fans take a massive shit on him. It's you have to feel that. It gets to your core and it comes out. That's when the real you comes through. Nobody's mad anymore. Everyone's just kind of there. Yeah. Whew. Uh, we get a video package recapping the Sean Sid issue. Uh, they were friends. And then Sid betrayed Sean. Uh, Sid beat Sean for the title at Survivor Series after attacking Jose Lothario and hitting Sean with a TV camera. Then uh, Sid powerbombed Jose's son Pete through a table. Uh, tonight, Sean gets a rematch in his hometown. What do you make of uh, Sean and Jose Lothario together? I can see why on paper they thought it was a good idea. I can see, like, Jose Lothario is his trainer, and, like, they have that personal connection, and he kind of humanizes Sean. He's he's the myth to Sean's Rocky here. Yeah. The problem is is that Sean, Sean Michaels is impossibly attractive. you yeah. got to understand that, first and foremost. Like, Shawn Michaels is too attractive to be a babyface. This is not something way too good looking to be a babyface. This is not something that has happened in wrestling very often. There haven't been that many genuinely gorgeous professional wrestlers before. But Ric Flair, ladies man, sure, but actually kind of ugly. Not so much. I can't even think of another example of a wrestler who is so attractive that it's impossible to like him. Randy Orton. I think he's right there. Like Roman I think, Reigns. but he he goes back and forth. Like even those two examples aren't like this. Man, like Roman Shawn Michaels, those eyes. Yeah, I mean, trust me, Roman Reigns is like that. But I don't think that men realize it the way that they should. <laughs> like Roman Reigns is deeply attractive to everyone who's attracted to men, but I don't think that men realize how jealous of Roman Reigns they should be. <laughs> but Shawn Michaels is like beefcake human perfection in the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> especially like. Here he comes. He does his walk to the ring here, wearing chaps, a cowboy hat, and no shirt. And I literally out loud said, "Ugh." Do they realize what they're doing to him? No. (laughs) At least they didn't give him a woman. Like the one thing they never like actually had Sonny manage him. Like they had the common sense not to give him a hot woman too. 
But I think they realized that, like, look, it's such a hard sell to get men to cheer for him. Maybe if we humanize him by giving him his, like, old, ugly trainer, you know? He wants nothing to do with Jose Lothario. That's the thing, is that, like, he knows... He's such a dick. Also, Shawn Michaels... Shawn Michaels, we've said before, has an idea of where wrestling is going. Like, the click knew where wrestling was going. And, like, he wants to get there. And Jose Lothario as his manager is not the way to, to the future of wrestling. No. And so he's, like, putting up with it. But he's, like, when they make him, like, sob over Jose Lothario's heart attack, like, it's so fake. You know he doesn't give a shit about Jose Lothario. Where did it go wrong for Sean? Was it a mistake to ever turn him face? No. The people, the people wanted him as a face. Like, they turned him. Did, did they not want him as much as they thought they did? Let me put something to you. I don't think WWE realized who their audience was. And this is also the case with Bret Hart. Throughout the 90s, you're two big stars of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, right? Who do those two people appeal to most? Women. Women. Like, Bret Hart went to Europe and was like an international sex symbol. Yeah. Shawn Michaels is making... There are like teenage girls in the audience who are screaming at Shawn Michaels. Like, he's a pop star. And they uh, ignore... Like, as if that audience doesn't even exist. I've never gotten the Bret Hart appeal to women. I think he's kind of greasy and gross. But it's undeniable that it was there. Oh, yeah, it is. Like, the ladies definitely loved him. Um, but, like, why weren't you getting Shawn Michaels into Teen Beat Magazine? Why wasn't Bret Hart being pushed? He did, he did that Playgirl spread. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Imagined when he realized that was a gay magazine That's which he apparently is exclusively read by gay men come on now it's for women <laughs> imagine just the river of shit he must have gotten from the guys when they saw that but at the same time like he looked fucking great in that magazine man and like that's but that's a big part of it too is like there's a lot of jealousy towards Shawn Michaels towards his relationship with Vince towards his ability in the ring towards frankly, how good looking he is. Like he's, it's just one of those things. Like I don't, if they had realized what they had, could they have pivoted and aimed WWE more at like young women? Could they have incorporated that at least? Would have been a good idea. If you portray Shawn Michaels in that way, Maybe you create a situation kind of like what you had with John Cena. Where, like, kids and women love John Cena. Men fucking hate John Cena. Both sides pay to see John Cena, right? Like, maybe that's what you could have created with Sean or Brett. Maybe he is that original tweener back here. But the problem is, is that this company is aimed solely at, like, 9 to 27-year-old men. And those people fucking hate Shawn Michaels as this character. There's nothing likable about Shawn Michaels to them. Oh, he's a dickhead. Yeah. He's better than you and he fucking knows it. (laughs) Definitely the kind of guy you wouldn't leave your girlfriend alone with. And at this point, like, the real Shawn Michaels, who's bitter and unhappy, it's bleeding through. Pill addict. 
yeah. throwing hissy fits in the ring, getting into it with the fans when they yell at him. Like, just yeah, it's starting to show with the ass. Like, yeah, he's an emotionally stunted man child. And part of it, too, is like Brett and Sean both go through the spiral at the same time. And it's not really about each other. It's just that they're, they're both just so bitter about the way the 90s treated them. And it's just coming out. And, like, you ha- they run with it with Brett, but they just deny it with Sean until, like, the fall. Like, they just won't accept that he's not a babyface now. They should have turned him sooner. Yeah. But then but your for, just face, this like, one, for just this one night, though, it all works. He is the biggest baby face in the world when in his, front of this crowd on this night. When his music hits. Oh, it's a roar. Well, first, they do the tracking entrance that we love. So we get to see him walk through backstage on his way to the ring with Jose. Wearing the cowboy hat and like just looking like a badass. <laughs> Loved it. Love this every time. I don't understand how this isn't like just standard for main events. Every main event, you should watch them walk from the dressing room to the ring. Every time. Both yeah. guys. They Every just, time. They do it in boxing. Why not wrestling? And it just tells you so much about their yeah. character, the way they do it. Like, Shawn Michaels is full of confidence. Bravado. He's got his mentor with him. Sid just storms out. Sid looks like a monster. Sid's terrifying. I, he just, like, blocks out the sun as he's walking through backstage. He's so huge. And his eyes are wild and he's covered in like just waters, just like shaking off of him. And he walks alone. Yeah. By himself. No one making eye contact. Like you wanted to really tune things up for Sean. You could have had him walk with his family to the ring too. Like give, give him a full entourage like boxing. Do the full Rocky. Give him a bunch of school children from San Antonio. Like give him everything. Give him yeah. the Texas flag, for fuck's sake. And then Sid the Monster walks, walks all by alone. himself. Yep. He doesn't need an entourage. The baddest man on the planet. He got to the top alone. He won the title alone. He doesn't need nobody. But even the way that they do do it, it's just so it's so stark between the two, and it's incredibly effective. Um, heat for Sid, but he still gets some fist bumps as he's walking through the walking to the ring. He's the coolest man in the world. <laughs> yeah, and the fans in the front row are the Smarks who paid you know two hundred dollars to sit there, so they're into Sid more than Sean. I wonder if it drove Vince crazy that Sid looked for those <laughs> fist bumps, like this terrifying monster, and he walks out. He's just like, yeah, let me dap you up, bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Who's the man? You You're are the man. God, that Survivor Series entrance is such a moment. Who's the man? And then a deafening, you're the man. And just the way the pop builds and builds, like it's infectious. It starts with just a couple people, and it's like they're the ones who gave everybody else permission to start cheering him. And then he starts, like, pumping it up, like, waving his arms, like, give it to me. Yeah. Uh, they quickly fight out to the floor. Uh, Sid slams Sean into the ring apron. Uh, they go back in the ring. Sean comes off the top rope, but Sid catches him with a power slam. 
Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Sid applies a camel clutch. Sean slips out, gets his boots up on a corner charge. But Sid slams Sean into the corner and he you know, gets folded up like an accordion. I always loved that bump. Super cool bump. Uh, Sid runs Sean's back into the ring post, then locks on a bear hug. If it's a Sid main event match, we need a long-ass bear hug. I mean, it's one of five moves he knows how to do. <laughs> so, And it's the one that takes up the most time. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Should also note, both guys are coming in less than 100%. Uh, Sean's got the flu. He's really sick, running a fever, been throwing up all day. And Sid uh, had been in a car accident and, you know, had a busted up neck and was not, you know, at his best. So both guys are, you know, kind of messed up at this point. People have gone out of their way so many times to try to make Sid look like not a tough guy when in fact he's one of the toughest men ever in wrestling they just it doesn't behoove people in wrestling to put him over like that bad driver a lot of terrible driver oh shit yeah no he gets he gets he gets hurt bad in a car accident in the spring oh yeah ends his wwf run and he never comes back the fact that the man came back from the leg break that he took oh yeah. I mean... Literally one of the worst injuries of all time. And he not only walking, not only playing softball, he wrestled again. Yeah. Man, I want more Sid. Fuck yeah, more Sid. Uh, Sean makes a comeback. He hits the elbow drop. He goes for sweet chin music, but Sid dodges it and he power bombs Sean out on the floor. That was pretty badass. Fuck yeah, it was. Uh, Sid goes after the Lotharios, but Sean breaks that up. Uh, back in the ring, Sid throws Sean into the referee. Then he hits a choke slam, makes the cover, and he gets you know the visual pinfall. He's got Sean pinned, but there's no referee to make the count. I really like that. I mean, you can tell they are very much protecting Sid. I mean, the fact that they're giving Sid that pin over the baby face in the baby face's hometown kind of strongly suggests to me that he is going to get the title back here. Yeah. Usually this would be just a, basically a squash by my Michaels, but they are definitely protecting the shit out of Sid. A second referee comes in to make a close two count. Sid gets mad and knocks him out too. Uh, Sean grabs a TV camera and hits Sid with it. The original referee recovers to make the count, but Sid kicks out at two, and then Sean nails Sweet Chin music to get the one, two, three, and win back the title. Um, match was just okay, you know. Probably Sean's worst world, Sean's worst pay-per-view match. I don't know of the '90s, probably. Yeah, I mean, there are some other ones that were pretty bad. Honestly, the Mike, the Austin match at WrestleMania was pretty shit for Michaels, but. Even though it was bad, this is probably the most successful match he had in the 90s, isn't it? Yeah, this is 
of kind of this title run, this is like the only one where the crowd is, you know, a hundred percent behind him. Let's say we're describing it as if it's like this slow plotting match that nobody likes, but like the fans are in on this match all yeah. the way when yeah. he's in the forever bear hug, like the crowd's losing their shit for him to get out of it. They popped for every single one of his comebacks. They popped for the near falls. They had the crowd right in the palm of their hand. And when he hits that sweet chin music, which every once in a while, Shawn Michaels, when he really felt like it was important, would like put stank on the sweet chin music. And this is one of those where like he just throws it like to the point where he like leaves his other foot. He just like throws that shit out. I mean, I think that's showing respect for the big man that he felt like he needed a real one to put him down and make it look good. And, like, when Sid takes it, you can tell that it's real because he almost looks confused. Because he doesn't, like, fall normally. He just kind of, like, falls over like a tree. Like, oh, what? Oh, I'm on the ground. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's it. Big celebration that goes on for several minutes. You know, Sean gets to put the belt on and pose and walk around and hug his family, high-five some fans. Uh, I don't think they sprung for confetti or fireworks, if I'm remembering right. I don't think so, which is a shame, because that would have been the time to do it. And then we go to a highlight package to play us out, and that is a wrap on the show. Um, I don't know, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs in the middle. I think I'd go thumbs in the middle here. I enjoyed this, but objectively it wasn't a very good show. I think that's the perfect way to put it. Like, I really enjoyed this show from start to finish. It's such a weird atmosphere, and it's so weird to see, like, the AAA guys here and to see Austin coming up. But this is a bad, bad, bad show. I mean, yeah, I'd say if you did this show in a normal-sized arena, garbage. But, like, this, the atmosphere added a lot to it. It's something special. I'm really glad we did it. Yeah. Um, I mean, an, an important show in company history. This is, you know, the beginning of this company getting its groove back. There's still going to be some hard times in 1997, but you know, this was their first big win in a long time. Like first time, you know, WrestleMania 10 selling out the garden was nice, but really since, you know, SummerSlam 92, when they sold out Wembley, you can say they really crushed a big moment. Absolutely. And even though it's going to be a long time before it really works out and it really starts to get positive momentum, like the way I remember it, this is when they started to turn it around. Like there's just something about this that gave them the positive momentum they needed to eventually catch on. Yeah, I mean, by the summer, things are picking up. You know, the summer they start selling out their pay-per-views. In the fall, you know, they do the big gate in St. Louis and the big buy rate for Sean and Taker and the Hell in a Cell. Then they do big business up in Montreal for Brett and Sean, and they, you know, weather the storm of Brett leaving. They do big business at the 98 Rumble, and then, you know, they crush it at WrestleMania 14, and then they're off to the races. One of my more controversial opinions is that while Austin is the machine that drives the Attitude Era and that drives their incredible business success, Shawn Michaels is who saves this company. Degeneration X DX is, is kind of the, the spark that lit that fire, like in the yeah. fall of '97. That when right when Austin goes down, like right when they needed something, you know, they thought they had Austin coming up, 
and then he gets his neck broken and they've got nowhere to turn. Like DX gets hot at just the right moment and the fall is all built around them. Austin takes the torch, but when business actually turns around, it's not Austin. It's Sean. Sean's what turns the business around. Sean's main event matches are what finally get those buy rates popping. Because DX is DX only lasts for like six months. And yet it's so definitive, so important that like it's it reverberates to this day. Like it's I know that people didn't want to give Sean credit at the time and have taken every opportunity not to because he was such a dickhead at the time. But honestly, Shawn Michaels is as much responsible for the turnaround in business for WWE as anyone. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, raising the pay-per-view prices combined with letting Brett go and getting out from under that million-dollar guarantee they had given him is what keeps the company afloat financially. And it's Shawn Michaels who's selling those pay-per-views. It's Shawn is in the main event of each of those pay-per-views that fall when they really need that money. And they do strong buy rates despite having raised the prices. And they ride Shawn until he literally gives out yeah. physically. And like he blows up. I mean, it's just a Austin breaks his neck. They can't afford Brett. So they let him go. They screw Brett. They lose Bulldog too, and then Sean breaks his back, and somehow this ends with the company's best run ever. It doesn't make any sense. Nope. <laughs> but goddamn, if it didn't work. Yeah. So yeah, that is uh, the 1997 Royal Rumble. You know, one of the moments that sparked the Attitude Era and the boom period that would follow. And to reiterate, the only episode of something to wrestle with worth going back and listening to. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I feel like that podcast, that show made me want to do this podcast. Cause I saw like the potential of like how fun this kind of show could be. So much of our early podcasts were like, we both come up with the same – we'd come up with an idea to do a show, and then they would release the show like a week before us, and we'd be like, well, <laughs> yeah, they had the still exact has, same idea. To this day, it's still – I mean, at this point, Pod, Codrad has so many podcasts that, like, he's doing every show in wrestling history, so inevitably we're just going to run into some. Yeah, but it's not even – but, like, he, they made the model, and we yeah. followed it, honestly. Like, there's no other way to put it. But So thank goodness that they came along and did that. But if you're still listening to that podcast, I'm giving you permission to stop. It sucks now. (laughs) Yeah, it's clearly seen better days. Not to start like a rivalry or whatever. (laughs) Like we don't need another Mark Madden situation. Fuck Mark Madden. Yeah, by the way, fuck Mark Madden. Um, so next time after we've co- this is kind of one of the, you know, the dawning of the attitude era, we'll cover a great show from, you know, right in the middle of it with, uh, the Royal Rumble 2000. That's one I'm really excited to do. What a fantastically interesting time and what a fantastically shitty Royal Rumble. <laughs> yeah. The Royal Rumble match that year is pretty bad, but one of the greatest matches in company history with uh, the Triple H Cactus Jack Street fight, just an all-timer. One of the greatest angles, one of the greatest matches, just one of the great moments of that era and doesn't get talked about enough. So we're going to talk about it a lot. Yeah. And a fun undercard too. We got um, 
the Dudleys against uh, the Hardy Boys in a tables match. Um, no, actually, that's about it for good stuff on the undercard, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, the Triple H Cactus Jack match is incredible. So uh, we'll talk about that a lot next time. We'll see you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>